Welcome to episode 137 of GBW Podcast. My name is Chris. With me, as always, is Josh. How are you? I'm great. We uh, have another big batch of movies to talk about. Because that's all we do now. Because we don't leave our houses enough. <laughs> We're not supposed to. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, um, I guess I'll begin. Yeah, it's been and, quite uh, the upheaval of a week in the horror community, I must say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I've got something that relates to that that I'll be talking about in a little bit. So we'll, oh, we'll do kinda, you really? Well, yeah, we'll kind of touch upon that when we oh. get to it. So, um, but let's start off with um, a completion of a series, because I'm pretty sure you're completing a series this time too. Oh, I am. I am. You're right. We're both we're both part fouring it this time. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about best of the best four without warning from 1998, the poorest of the best of the best movies, or as I like to call it, the least of the best. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the worst of the best, but it's not like awful. It's just compared to the other three, it's not as good. So uh, this t- Philip Ree is back as Tommy Lee. I never realized till this series that his character name is Tommy Lee. So the, the whole movie, when they call him Tommy Lee, I was just picturing fucking the real Tommy Lee sit behind a drum set playing like playing like girls, girls, girls on that spinning drum kit that he used to have in concerts. Nice. So I'm like... <laughs> And then I pictured Tommy Lee trying to do martial arts, and I'm just like, why am I being more entertained by picturing Tommy Lee in these <laughs> situations than what the Tommy, the fictional Tommy Lee is doing in this movie? So that's got to say something. So he's back as the star. He also directed this one, just like he did in part three. Um, this is like, it starts off with these five identical black leather-clad bikers cresting this hill. So, like, with the sun behind them, and they're coming over top of the hill really slowly. And it turns into this, like, delivery. This truck's delivering something, and it turns deadly. So they, like, block traffic, and they start gunning down everyone so they can steal this trailer. It's like these Russian guys. And so they're gunning down everyone. This helicopter comes in lifts the trailer up and they take it off they sweep it away and i'm like okay so far so good they're you know they're stealing something that's a heist they're bloodily gunning down cops left right and center i'm like well i think a lot of people can agree with that these days but i'm just like yeah this is this is all right so it's a pretty elaborate action set piece to open this movie which is you got to do with these movies let's be honest you're in part four you need a fucking stinger like honestly like by this point no one's gonna watch the best of the best four unless they've already invested themselves in the first three like i did um so the reason that they stole this truck is because it's it's a shipment of money paper so it's blank money paper because the bad guys already have the plates so they can print counterfeit u.s cash so that's their big thing it's like we're gonna steal the money paper we're going to start printing this fake cash. Flip to our good guy, Tommy, teaching martial arts to the police. So he's been hired to show all the cops how to do martial arts. And, you know, he's also taking care of his younger daughter at the same time. So they go to the park and they play. They have cotton candy and have balloons and all that stuff. And then along comes Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters playing the gruff detective who just doesn't like Tommy Lee because he doesn't seem to like Asian people in general. And I'm like, come on, Ernie Hudson. Come on, man. 
You're no, a black guy. It. You should know persecution. Come on, dude. Like, come on. Mellow out on Tommy Lee here. So from there, this girl that Tommy knows steals this disc from the Russians that allows them to print the money, crosses paths with him in the middle of a convenience store and slips it into onto his person while he's fighting off all the bad guys who have chased her into the convenience store. You know, from there, it just becomes the Russians trying to get back the disc. Tommy saying, no, we're not going to have that and fighting back. That's basically the plot of this movie. Um, there's some pretty good stuff in this, though. Like, like um, there's a scene in it where they're torturing a guy to try and find out where the disc is by, like, basically tying him up to a target with a bullseye and shooting golf balls at him like like a driving range or just like hitting golf balls at his head and everything. And that's, that's pretty fun. Like, I'm like, that's okay. Um, and there's a scene where they assault his house. Like all the Russians come to his house and they all, you know, storm into the house and for, he's running through the house and he's actually doing like high fucking kicks and knocking the light bulbs out of the fixtures so that the house can be dark. And I'm like, that's pretty impressive. He's getting up pretty high there to knock these lights out. So That'd that's be hard, a, to, hard to get change those after, though. I know. It's like, what's he going to do? He's going to have to buy a bag of potatoes to try and get their Yeah, broken. that would be a real pain in the ass. Like, the cleanup? <laughs> like, come on, I wonder, dude. I wonder if he did, like, 40. He was like, oh, shit. Like, this is going to... I might get electrocuted afterwards. Yeah, he's like five lights. <laughs> he's kicking in the fifth light. He's like, fuck, I've made a bad mistake right now. <laughs> I shouldn't have done this. He's like, there's got to be an easy way. I should have just went to the fuse box and thrown the breakers. He's like, what am I doing? So he, so he, so he does that, um, and then we've got the B-list cast in minor roles. So we've got like uh, Chris Lemon, who, you know, uh, he shows up in all these fucking B movies. Uh, I think he's who's he? This he's the son of uh, Jack Lemon. Oh wow, I don't even yeah. know who Chris Lemon is. Yeah, he's Jack Lemon's son, and he's in all these kind of B movies. He shows up as like Tommy Lee's cop friend. Paul Gleason, who played the uh, the uh, principal in yeah. the Breakfast Club, is in this too as another cop. So I'm like, okay, it's got these, you know. And the main baddies here are uh, Tobin Bell from the Saw, oh, okay. yeah. Saw films with a Russian accent, and uh, this guy called Thur Riefenstein, who's fucking bad, dude. Like he's his acting is bad. Like we're talking like. We're talking like New Horizons, Don the Dragon Wilson film, bad acting is what we're talking. <laughs> like Future Kick or something like that. You know? Yeah. We're talking that level, like Ultra Warrior kind of acting. You know. Oh, Ultra Warrior. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, and and Philip Ree in this really doesn't feel very good. Like he's not very good in this. Like in the first three, he was fine, and for some reason, I just felt he. I just felt it was like he just wasn't as engaging this time out. I don't know what it is. And, you know, and while the end his direction seems actually weaker than part three as well, because apart from that opening action sequence, it's a lot of like slow mo shots, you know? Yeah. And I, I complain a lot about fight scenes where like the born type fight scenes where you can't tell what's going on because of all the quick cutting. But I also complain about slow motion. Like, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Like, like, just show him punching someone. I don't need to see it in slow motion four times. Just have him punch someone out. You know, have him kick out a light. 
decide he's made a mistake by kicking out the light and then punch <laughs> a Russian guy out. That's all you need to do to keep me happy. Like, seriously. Um, Ernie Hudson's pretty cool in this, but underused, totally underused. I mean, he's like a big, imposing, like, badass, gruff detective guy. And I'm like, oh, they could have used him way better in this. Like, he could have. He doesn't do that thing where in a lot of these movies, they'll be like, oh, the cop doesn't agree with the hero. And they have this rocky relationship. And then later in the movie, they come to understand each other doesn't really do it that much in this one and i was hoping for that because then i'd be like it's gonna become a buddy buddy cop movie with fucking philip Ree and ernie hudson kicking russian ass i'm like please do it but nope doesn't happen um and there's another s- scene in this with stick fighting which is pretty cool i gotta admit so like there is some cool stuff in here but i just thought it was it felt lazy compared to the first three and like it's got some really bad CG explosions during some of the chase scenes. And I don't know. I just, it didn't do it for me this time. And uh, you'll, you'll be happy to know that Sven Ole, Ole Thorson from that great film Abraxas <laughs> is in this. And he gets to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger and do quips through this whole thing. Like there's a moment in this where he's like, he like, breaks into this 18-wheeler to steal the 18-wheeler and he basically kills the guy, the truck driver, and he throws him over so he can steal the truck driver and goes, you can ride shotgun after he kills the guy to steal his <laughs> to steal his rig. And I'm like, okay, he's doing the Arnie thing right now, so whatever. But yeah, it, it's it's not. It, it's the... I will never watch part four again. Let's be honest. At least with the first three, I'd probably watch them all again. Yeah. This one... This one, not so much. Not so much. Bit of a disappointment. Bit of a bit of a, a weak way to go out when I was so happy that, like, this series was doing so many different things. So, like, like I said, the first one was the inspiring sports Olympic movie. The second one was, like, the blood sport ripoff set in Vegas. The third one was the I'm taking on the white supremacists in a small town. The fourth one was just, like, I'm making a fucking generic Russian bad guy martial arts movie. And that's yeah. the problem. So, yeah, least of the best. Least of the best. Yeah, it certainly has come a long way from the first one, eh? Yeah, it's like... like the series. Like, holy, yeah. what a difference. Yeah, like, the only thing that's connective tissue in all these is, is Philip Reese's character. And even then, his, um, his, like, timeline is so messed up and doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. the fact that, oh, his daughter seems to be too young in this movie from where she was in the last movie and how many years is this after they fought the koreans in the first movie like it's the timeline screwy for his character but i mean i get it this was basically him giving himself a um you know it was kind of like a vehicle to try and make him into a a kind of a low budget action star and didn't really work out because he wasn't in much after these to be honest so yeah you know but it, it was an interesting series because I, apart from like the Blood Fist series, which really aren't related either, it's just like so many different types of action movies in a four movie series. So I appreciate they did that. It's just unfortunate the last one goes out on such a whimper. So yeah. yeah. So he best... weirdly ended up on the um, he was on the commentary track for that Jackie Chan prisoner movie. Remember was that he? shitty? 
that one that was like you, and you, I know you talked about it and I watched the movie too and I agreed with you like that it was a very very missed opportunity movie and then they had a put the uh, it was dubbed in American and all that and it was just not not a very good not a very well done DVD package but Philip Ree provided the commentary as a martial arts expert which I thought was very strange too I didn't even realize that yeah like did you so watch I wonder if the that's commentary his gig now you know me of course i did <laughs> did he actually have anything insightful to say he sort of did but um uh, not no no because like the last thing i know that that i'm aware of him doing after the best of the best series was he directed this movie that basically looks like a three ninjas knockoff with a bunch oh. of ki- with a bunch of kids and he's again a karate school teacher i think in it that seems to be right. his thing, that he's a karate school teacher. Maybe that's what he does in real life. I I don't know. Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, he was in that um, – I watched a documentary recently called In Search of the Last Action Heroes, which was like a focus on 80s action and, you know, how – 80s and 90s action, how we had guys like Seagal and Van Damme and all that. Now we don't really have anything like that, which – I kind of beg to differ because we've got Scott Adkins, right? But and they did, and they did kind of say that. But yeah, he was in that, and he was okay in that too. But I don't know, man. I I don't I don't hold a grudge against the guy. I think he did pretty solid job considering he took on the writing and directing of most of these films, and could be worse. Could be worse. Yeah. It could be latter day Steven Seagal. So it could always be worse. <laughs> So, yeah, best of the best four without warning. Oh, terrible title. God. All right. Um, well, let's let's go from that to Death Race Beyond Anarchy. Ooh, <laughs> bad title, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this one's from 2018. This is the last in the Death Race official Death Race sequel series. Um, okay, so this was directed by Don Michael Paul. Now, Don Michael Paul, I know from the 90s, I think, because he was a former actor, and I remember him from this show that I watched called Models, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking show. <laughs> Do you remember that show? Vaguely, with, with yes. Trinity was in that, Carrie Ann Moss, and... Uh, it was about this modeling agency, and it was like a Melrose Place spinoff. The thing is, Anyways. I'm not, I'm not at all surprised you watched it. <laughs> it was about models, of course I watched it. Anyway, <laughs> Don Michael Paul was this like dumb surfer dude regular who started dating one of the models, and I've always remembered him from that show. He he definitely made an impression as like the kind of dopey surfer guy, right? So I have kind of noticed when he does pop up as a director, because he has shown up from time to time. He's done, you know, a few of the Trevor sequels, a few of the Sniper sequels, and he's done some other stuff. So I do I do recognize the name, and I, I am somewhat familiar with his work. Anyway, it's always... <laughs> I've always thought it was weird that this dumb surfer guy ended up being a director, but whatever. I look at, I'm looking him up. He actually wrote Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Yeah, he's been around this guy. Like, and he he wrote Half Past Dead, that great film, and he directed that too. Oh, I think he directed too. it. Yeah, he directed oh, that. Oh man, <laughs> so far off to a bad start <laughs> for me, anyway. <laughs> okay, so Don Michael Paul's a director. 
So Lists is back. Oh, good old Fred Kohler from the Mr. Mom. Um, we've also got Danny Trejo returning. And for some reason, they decided in this one to make Frankenstein a villain. So you've got the Statham one where he's like the hero. We've got the last two prequels where we're basically establishing him as a nice guy fighting the man. And then out of nowhere, he's like this kind of like, okay, he kind of reminded me of like Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie Hall Halloween movies. Like, (laughs) you know, he had the mask and the kind of the long hair. He's just kind of hulking and grunting. Like, so all of that kind of charisma that um, Luke Goss and Jason Statham brought to this character and Carradine back in the day uh, is gone. Like, this is just this, like, you know, stock, dumb villain. And, like, there was no explanation as to, like, why he's a villain. Like, if you've watched the last two, you kind of... It's kind of alluded to, like, what the new Frankenstein would be, but that's not really talked about. And clearly the guy in this movie is not is not what was alluded to. So they're so literally they're literally making his name literal Frankenstein, like a dumb hulking monster. Yeah, but he's not a monster, he's a dude. But, but you know what like I mean? This, this, yeah, yeah. Like he's yeah, definitely Michael Myers Rob Zombie version full vibes, right? And I also was a little again confused about the timeline on this one as well cuz I'm like is this is this after the last one that I watched, like the Luke Goss one, and before the Statham one, or is this way past the Statham one? Like, I'm, I'm very confused now, like, as to where this fits into the canon, because it, yeah, so that, that was weird. Okay, they've also, it's also more of, like, a Mad Max versus Mad Max type world. It's, it's like, all the, like, kind of like the if you can think of like cheesy 90s 2000s post-apocalyptic with like you know the people in rags and the shitty new metal and fire everywhere like it's that kind of theme going on um and as well as escape from new york theme where they've got um it's now like this wasteland called um the sprawl and they dump the prisoners into this area that's like walled off and that's where prisoners go a la escape from new york so they're trying to combine a couple of things here, make Frankenstein this villain. Um, and then you've got this new guy named Connor Gibson. So basically these prisoners are dropped into the sprawl and then they they um, have to kind of fend for themselves, but they can compete in the death race, which is now an, an, an underground illegal race. And, um, and, you know, people are just kind of trying to survive in here. So, after Connor is dropped off, and he's, like, kind of this, like, he's kind of, like, imagine if, like, James Duvall, do you know who James Duvall is? He was in, like, um, Doom Generation, and he's he's been in tons of stuff. He was in, um, okay. uh, what's that one with fucking Jake Gyllenhaal, Donnie Darko. Okay. So, okay. he's this indie actor. Like, all I could think of was that guy if he was, like, buffed up. That's what this guy reminded me of. So he's this guy, he's like dropped in, he's kind of like this cool, he's like the cool guy and he's, um, but he's just, he's just a prisoner that's thrown in. He meets up with this girl named Gypsy Rose, who's also thrown in. They decide that they want to enter the death race. So, you know, here we go. Now, then we're introduced to Frankenstein and 
I gotta say the in, the intro to the Frankenstein was pretty cool. Like it was a SWAT team, kind of like Frankenstein wins a race, and then the the like I guess the man is trying to like shut Frankenstein down, so he sends a SWAT team into where Frankenstein's partying after the race to get him. And instead of getting him, uh, Frankenstein's goons kind of surround the SWAT team in the swimming pool area. And then Frankenstein comes out and he's like, you're not going to get me or whatever. Anyway, his goons then shot, shoot them all down. So they're all getting, they're all dead after being machine gunned. And then like four dudes come running out with fucking chainsaws, turn on the chainsaws and just start chopping up the people. And I'm like, okay, so this is like a totally different tone than the last one. It's way like all this gore. Meanwhile, at the party that where this happened, there was a metal band playing, like I said, shitty metal band, fire blowing, naked girls, like dad gyrating to the music. And I'm like, whoa, this is not my death race. Right. (laughs) But I'm like, but I'm like, you know, I'm kind of rolling with it. I'm like, okay, well, maybe this kind of needed to go in this direction. I, I've always felt this series should be a little more, a little more adult, maybe, and um, this certainly did that. And but it also had a very, very much of a B movie cheesy tone to the whole thing. Okay, so then, um, so then our hero Connor is like trying to join the death race, and as this gypsy. There's like a qualifying match with motorcycles that I thought was pretty cool. And again, like the motorcycles, it's not just the motorcycles jumping and the winner goes in death race. It's motorcycles jumping. But if they fall, then there's these like death race clowns that come running out and start beating <laughs> them to death with like baseball bats. <laughs> so I'm like, OK, but it was a pretty cool scene. Death race there's clown. Good... <laughs> exactly. Death... There's a few death race clowns. There was then some like fight scenes and... Um... Then we get, like, Frankenstein's girlfriend tries to, like, seduce Connor in, like, a shower scene where she, like, drops everything, like, full frontal seduction. And I'm like, oh, my God, totally unexpected again. Um, So there's a lot of, like, a lot of nudity in this. There's a lot of, like, somewhat, there's a few, like, kind of graphic, like, sex scenes, a lot of gore, a lot of fists, a lot of cars. So when we finally get to the um, death race itself, um, <laughs> again, it opens with a naked woman it, only wearing grease walking up to start the race with her little flag or whatever. You know, the race starters naked. So I'm like, yeah, OK, whatever. And then the race starts. And I got to say, the racers in this were a little bit more like 70s death race like they all kind of had unique personalities i thought the cars were maybe a little bit cooler i thought the course was a little bit cooler so it it was pretty pretty fun again like i just i don't i don't really have a lot bad to say about this series except for i just didn't understand why they made frankenstein a villain like it didn't make any sense to me where every other movie has kind of gone the opposite direction so like it's it's like someone didn't understand like someone heard about the plot and just said oh his name's frankenstein i guess he's a villain i'll write the script right (laughs) (laughs) and no one no one kind of fact checked it right um (laughs) but i would have thought that fred kohler as lists would have been like hey guys why is frankenstein all of a sudden this jerk uh because of course lists is now helping our hero when he's been helping frankenstein for all the other movies trejo doesn't have much to do in this he's in i think he's in mexico (laughs) And uh, he's like laying low, but he's like 
having sex with hookers and watching the death race on a TV in a bar. So, you know, it's one of those things where, like, they're showing the death race, then it will cut to Danny Trejo in a bar going, go, Connor, go, Connor, something like that. Typical Trejo. (laughs) Kind of cheesy. Uh, We also have a log for the ride. Speaking of Danny Trejo, we also have Danny Glover making an appearance in this, which also was, I find it, I always find it weird when I see Danny Glover in these low-budget movies. Like in Badasses and this, I always kind of seems like it really does seem like he's above this like but he's definitely seems to be going full on with these uh low budget action movies now um but yeah i mean i don't know i i don't know if i'm overselling this or underselling it i haven't really made up my mind um but i think if you enjoy the series again you're gonna like this one um it is a little bit more there's more nudity there's more gore so if that's your thing um there's more of that um I, I don't know if I was too into the post-apocalyptic vibe. Um, it felt a little unnecessary, and that shitty metal band, although I was laughing at them, um, didn't really belong. Like I did again, just odd choices here. But if you like kind of the tone of the series overall, you're probably gonna like this one too. Were they like a death metal band or something? <laughs> well, just the yeah, like kind of like yeah, like they They're were like you know, a corn. Yeah, like, you know, the, the the hair with, like, the shaved sides and the long oh. hair, they're flipping around, and then, like, the bass player, you know, I, maybe he was wearing a mask, like, Slipknot or something, and there's <laughs> fire blowing up in the background, and, and naked girls, like, dancing around to the music, and, uh, yeah. So what was their like, take on Fury Road's guitar player? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's But this was before, or was this before or after Fury Road? Fury Road was 2015. Okay, so they were probably taking some Fury Road stuff here. Anyway, if you like car car fucking racing movies and with real stunts and stuff like that and and all this crazy shit going on, you probably it wasn't boring, let me tell you that, right? Which is the number one rule of these kind of movies. You want to make them interesting and fun and not boring, and this was all three. So it's not a five-star movie, but... If you like this series, you're probably gonna like this one too. But it's it's not for the kids. <laughs> mm. Mm. But I, like... it made me it made me wish it made me go. I hope there's another one. Huh. But seems I don't like know if that's going. Seems like we had fairly successful series this time though. Yeah, and like mine. I mean, I think you were going into yours expecting to like it. Like I was, I was kind of dreading this to be frank. Like, and uh, I actually ended up quite liking this series well, i don't think i went into mine expecting to like anything after part one okay yeah because like i remember liking part one and i've i'd seen all these before and i remember not really having any memories of the two three and four so i mean it's it's always good that like, we don't get another children of the corn or or hellraiser up in here that we actually have something where we, by the time we're done we're not like why did i waste my time yeah, man, I was I was actually posting some stuff on our Letterbox group about like our lists of move what we've watched. If you're ever interested, you can go there and see. Like, I'm putting up like all all of what we've watched for each episode. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I came across Hellraiser Judgment, and I'm like, how the f-? or it wasn't it wasn't Judgment? It was like the fourth one, and I'm like, how the fuck did I do? Like, why did I put myself through that? <laughs> And after your children of the cord was too, like I was like, what? What were we doing? <laughs> Being idiots. That's what we were doing. <laughs> we were taking one for the team. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> All right. Well, well anyway, this was, this is part of a four pack. Just I'll throw this in. This was I did buy this as a four pack on DVD. Um, with the starting with the Statham one and ending with this one, and I think it was like twenty bucks on DVD. I yeah, I definitely would recommend buying that if if any of these have sounded fun to you. Nice. Right, and I would rec- I would probably recommend buying the best of the best set too. Yeah. If we're on that, because I told you you can import a Blu-ray from the UK for like twenty bucks. I mean, yeah. Maybe avoid four, but the other three are fun. So yeah. Yeah. Two successful series. Very good. Very good. Um, now let's talk about a movie that I I bought the Arrow DVD, the UK release of this a long time ago. Uh, it's region free. So if you want to watch it, be my guest, but I wouldn't recommend it. I watched a little movie from 1979 called Jaguar Lives. <laughs> so, oh, it's not good? It's not that good. Um, so this is from director Ernest Pintoff, who Josh and I will know as his follow-up to Jaguar Lives, who was a little movie called Lunch Wagon, which I know, oh, you, would, yeah. which I know you and I kind of enjoyed mm. as a early 80s kind of sex comedy goofy sex comedy this isn't that this is basically we've got this martial arts champion joe lewis he's never acted before particularly let's give him a lead role in a james bond ripoff is basically what jaguar lives is so this movie opens with our hero jaguar played by joe lewis like i said racing in this car towards this monument i'm like oh man he's totally he's doing something he's in for this and when and then so he gets to the monument and he's racing towards it on foot he's like ah and the fucking thing blows up while he's racing towards it i'm like okay you, you gotta fight in the first five minutes you got shit exploding i'm okay i'm in and then the credits roll and i look at the credits and i'm like holy shit christopher lee donald pleasance Barbara Bach, Woody Strode, John Huston. What the fuck is this movie? How did they get this cast, right? No kidding. But it's one of those ones where it's like we got this cast and gave them a lot of money to have like five minute five minute cameo basically is what is what that cast is all about. So from there, from there, Jaguar kind of he quits. He quits the CIA game basically because he couldn't stop this this uh, monument from exploding so he goes off into the middle of the desert gets back together with his sensei played by woody strode and then early on in the movie they encounter these racist rednecks so these rednecks roll into town and they're like they're looking at woody strode and they're like hey geronimo you know doing all these like racial <laughs> slurs about him being native american which of course leads to a fight where both jaguar and woody strode kick these rednecks ass i'm like okay so far you got me still i'm in so far but then Woody Strode playing first nations he's playing a native american yeah wow okay yeah so kind of odd but uh they're like hey geronimo ah, why don't you go back to your tp you know the just that kind of shit and i'm like okay whatever they beat up the racist rednecks i'm okay with this then along they send in barbara bach to try and get jaguar to come back in the fold of course they're going to try and get jaguar to come back in the fold he's like the best agent they ever had man but he's got a conscience and he doesn't want to do that of course when you got a girl showing up in a helicopter in like a kind of skimpy dress you're gonna say okay like why not you're like okay sure i just beat up some rednecks i know my skills still there i might as well go back in the cia and and you know 
save some people or whatever. I'll atone for this monument blowing up. So, um, you know, from there, it becomes this convoluted plot that seems to be trying way too hard to be, um, you know, it, it just trying way too hard to be too much. It's trying to be a Bond movie. It's trying to be a uh, a CIA, like, you know, one of those, like, um, you know, we've got this overlaying thing of this big conspiracy to destroy the earth. And we're going to have our hero jumping from country to country. Hit this, this scene's in Hong Kong. Now this scene's in another country and this scene's in another country, but it never all flows together. So you've got that going along. And then you've got your set pieces, which some of them are okay. You know, there's a set piece where he sneaks into this prison to try and bust this guy out. And the prison's in like Egypt or somewhere like that. So it's like, a deserty type prison, like a stone-walled prison that he has to sneak into to get him out. And then, like, you know, Donald Pleasant shows up as this dictator who walks around wearing a monocle and has this really goofy fucking accent, which you're just like, what are you doing, Donald? Like, what's this accent that you're throwing on right now? And, you know, and he all he does is basically tell Jaguar, like, oh, get out of my country. You're not going to stop me or whatever. And he keeps making all these oh brother faces all the time, like oh he's doing Jaguar's doing this shit again. Basically, he's pulling those faces. And then after Jaguar, he beats up this guy on a motorbike and steals th- the dictator's helicopter. All you can see is the priceless moan of Donald Pleasance looking up at Jaguar taking off in the helicopter and being like, "Not my heli! Why couldn't he take my motor car?" And then Donald Pleasance is out of the movie. So that's the kind of thing we've got with this cast. Um, And then, like I said, goes to Hong Kong, does the typical I'm chasing people on the riverboats kind of scene that's in all these movies set in Hong Kong on the river. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, We've got this score by Robert O. Raglan, which is totally trying to be a James Bond score and not doing a very good job of being a James Bond score particularly. You've got, um, you know, you've got like, the plot in this movie is so complicated and makes so little sense that they felt it was necessary to put in phone calls between agents. Like, like they don't show them on the phone. It's just phone calls on the soundtrack of them explaining what's going on because they're like, Oh, the audience isn't going to be able to follow this shit. So we'll just put in this complicated you know, scene. And then Christopher Lee shows up in another five minute cameo this movie has where he makes and this is kind of like his bond, his bond appearance, I felt, because he makes the hero play with this, do this game with this box type trap because he did something kind of similar in wasn't he in Man with a Golden Gun or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, where he had the wall of mirrors and stuff. He's he's kind of doing a, a riff on that character where he gives jaguar this box trap game to do and he sits there and watches a sword fight and then he disappears from the movie so i'm like okay quick paycheck in and out he's done um i just i just thought this movie was a drag because i didn't think the action sequences were that bad i thought lewis's acting was really bad so like if you have a hero who can't act it kind of takes you out of it a little bit but i just thought the plot made no sense whatsoever i had such a hard time following what was going on that i eventually lost interest i was just like Uh. i don't i have no idea what's happening in this movie right now and i'm like and obviously when they test screen this movie audiences didn't know what was going on so they had to insert these phone call 
fuck phone calls <laughs> on the soundtrack because I'm just sitting there going, w- w- who's that guy? And what's he doing now? Like, why is he going to this country? What's he got to do to stop the bad guys here? I don't know what's happening right now. And that's mm. the problem. Like, yeah. I, I just – if you're going to make a, a low-budget action movie with cameo appearances and a guy you know is – he's a champion. He trained with Bruce Lee. He's, you know, he's not an actor. Don't make a movie that relies on plot when you've got a guy like him. Just make a movie where he just goes in. Simple, simple. I got to go rescue someone. I'll kick ass along the way. That's what you do with a movie like this. You don't have a plot where I'm like, does he have to steal these missiles now and take – but, but if he steals these missiles, this other faction's going to come in and kidnap this person. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, mm. don't don't yeah, do yeah. that. Like, you can't do that. So, yeah, it's it's a bit of a failure, and uh, it's kind of a bummer that um that Lewis didn't really do much. I mean, he could have improved. I mean, the only other thing of note that I know he was in was a movie called Force Five. directed by robert klaus who did enter the dragon and jim cotta and all that but he died in like 2012 fairly young so it would have been interesting to see if he could have maybe even if he got like a minor minor like action hero status like say a don the dragon wilson or a richard norton status or something like that that might he might have been able to pull that off if he would have but i mean throwing him into a lead role in a movie that's got so much plot is not an advisable yeah, move. Yeah. And that's why Jaguar Lives fails. So, bit of a bummer. Bit of a bummer. I no mean, I'm, I'm happy that Arrow managed to dig this one out and put it out on, on disc. But at the same time, I'm like, man, I'm glad I didn't pay any more than than 10 bucks for this one. Because yeah. now I'm going to go and try and sell it. Because I, I, it's just... It's another one of those Arrow titles where it never made the step from dvd to blu-ray by that company yeah and you can understand why i mean the dvd is not even widescreen so really yeah it's four three so jaguar lives is a bit of a if you want to watch your ernest pintoff movie track down lunch wagon instead let's just put (laughs) it that way so yeah 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 all right um okay let's go into a netflix special i haven't done that for a while okay this wasn't coming off Netflix, so this just happened to be on it. That's rare but, for you. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of stopped caring about that. I yeah. used to, like, worry about it, but there's just so much content now. Like, I'm just like, who cares? Yeah, I don't care because I look at my movie collection. I'm like, fuck, I'm never going to get to watch all those anyway, so what do I care? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll wrap up another series. This was only a two-movie series, but I thought, okay, well, I'll wrap this one up. And it's one of those ones where I'm like, as I'm clicking on, I'm like, do I really do I do I really want to watch this? And then the whole time I'm like, why am I watching this? And then I'm like, why was this made? Like, <laughs> anyway, that's a little movie called Fourteen Cameras. Oh season. my God, no! <laughs> Thirteen cameras. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just like the whole time I'm just like, there's no selling point here, like. But I but I clicked it. I watched the whole thing and I don't get it. But anyway, so if you're not familiar with Thirteen Cameras, that movie's about this like super like sleazy creep uh, named Gerald, played by Neville Archambault. And he um, in that movie he like basically outfits this 
I guess a rental home or something. I can't really remember. Like that's how it wasn't that long ago either. <laughs> it's this rental home with fucking hidden cameras and this like pregnant girl and her boyfriend or her husband live there and basically they get into fights and have sex or whatever and he's watching the whole time and ends up like kidnapping someone and putting them in the basement, blah 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 blah. But he never like gets it's never like too there's never really much of an explanation. He's not like really perving out. It's just kind of, I don't, I don't know. Like it just didn't seem like there was a much of a point. So to continue that, um, we've got 14 cameras, which also doesn't have much of a point where, um, Gerald has returned and he's now in the Airbnb business and he's, uh, he's, uh, outfitted some Airbnb properties with, uh, the hidden cameras <laughs> Uh, so he can like go home and watch people and um yeah it's just kind of weird like he just he watches people from his little place and he's um he's now the the pregnant spoiler alert but the pregnant the baby from the original movie is now like eight and is living with him and uh yeah he does these airbnb things and he um you know he does gross shit like when he'll figure out when the people are going out and then he'll go over and he'll like go over and he'll like smell panties or like put put the put the toothbrush in his mouth, like suck on the toothbrush and then put it back. And yeah, it's gr- kind of gross stuff. And like drink the orange juice and then leave. And yeah, I'm just kind of like, why am I watching this? Okay, so then can I just can I just say, I think it's hilarious that you said spoiler alert for a fucking movie no one's gonna watch. Well, someone's watching it. There was a second one made, dude. I just don't think anyone <laughs> cares, so... <laughs> you shouldn't care. Uh, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. Okay, so... Um, okay, so then we're... Then we get to the kind of the main story, and it's this family of, like, mom, dad, two kids, and the da- the daughter has brought her friend. So it's this group that's rented one of these Airbnbs. They go and start staying in the house. And, of course, creepy Gerald's watching it all. Um, you know, we don't really get to know too much about this family. What we do get to know is that the friend is kind of uh, a bit of a bad girl. Like, she's got kind of got eyes on the, the son. And um, so there's that happening. Um, the, the two girls don't really want to be there with the family. So that's happening. But it's doesn't really matter um gerald has along the way kidnapped this this jogger from the at the beginning of the movie and he's holding he's there's kind of this subplot going on where he's holding her in this underground bunker and it's sort of going between the underground bunker and then him watching this family at the airbnb and it's yeah it's just kind of dull like and then then they start to throw in this like thing where he's like broadcasting the videos onto some onto the dark web and then um you know other creeps are like saying i'll give you like a five thousand dollars for that girl's panties so he'll (laughs) go to the house and get her panties and then it escalates to i'll give you eight hundred thousand dollars for the girl so this dark web stuff creeps in but again it doesn't really pay off and then we also find out that um one of the survivors from the original movie is also in the underground bunker with the new kidnap victim so they're trying to figure out a way out but yeah like the whole time here man like i'm just kind of like why why does this exist (laughs) like like 
I mean, and I'm not I'm not trying to be like on a high horse and stuff. Like, I mean, I I'm I like the Saw movies. Like, I can I can get down with some of this stuff if you've got a good villain and you've got interesting characters and you've got some like some like um you know like the saw movies are really good at suspense like you know what's gonna happen what's gonna happen with the trap right and you get a bit stressed out and freaked out and scared and unnerved and i like that about these but this is just it's there's just it's just everything's just so kind of calm like you're just kind of watching the stuff but there's not no real danger like you're not really feeling any anything and you don't really care about anyone and yeah it's just kind of a waste of time so uh, apparently there's going to be another sequel i won't be watching it <laughs> why 15 cameras yeah they can go forever oh. yeah oh wow <laughs> 16 cameras 17 cameras yeah. it's gonna but have it, the same it's gonna have the same white tank top wearing creep in every single one of them no he's not wearing a white tank top he's wearing i thought white. he was on the cover of 13 cameras if i recall Maybe he's he wears the yeah, maybe it's a tank top under like a work shirt. Oh, okay. But um, yeah, it's just I just kind of wish I maybe knew more about the guy. Like, why is he doing this or anything? Like, there's just none of that here. But it's also not really like it's it doesn't go far enough to really kind of make it interesting. That like, there's no gore or anything is what I'm trying to say. Like, so it's just it just kind of feels useless to me. And you know, this was uh, like. The first one I thought was okay, like sort of engaging, but this one was definitely a step backwards. New directors, not sure why. Um, yeah, but anyway, they're both on Netflix if you're interested, but um, not really worth your your time. I know the first one had a bit of a run on festival circuit, and I got a bit of good buzz there for some reason, but um, I mean, we've seen this shit a million times, right? Like, that's been dead way better, like creep in a house, like we've seen a lot. So I don't know. Anyway, fourteen cameras is kind of dead, so yes, you can avoid the whole series. <laughs> wow, I'm sure I'm gonna rush out to watch those on Netflix. <laughs> well, someone someone might be curious. Someone might be like me, like hand hovering over the button and uh yeah, I just I wouldn't recommend it. I sound like I feel like I, I would rather watch the vacancy movies again because it sounds like a similar plot, where it's people spying oh, on people in a hotel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, <laughs> let's talk about something that shouldn't be enjoyable but actually is enjoyable. Next, how about that? Sure. <laughs> let's talk about a TV movie from 1977 called Tarantulas. The Deadly Cargo. Let's talk about the fact. Oh, nice. Let's talk about the fact that the opening scenes are tarantulas sneaking their way into bags of coffee that are being loaded onto a onto a plane to the U.S. And the people who are importing the coffee happens to be Howard Hessman from WKRP in Cincinnati and Tom Atkins from Night of the Creeps and Halloween 3. Let's talk about that, and let's talk about how fucking awesome it is that they're both in this as importers of coffee beans that have tarantulas hitching their way back to the States. <laughs> let's also talk about the fact that when they're flying back to the States, 
They have stowaways on board. There's a lightning storm. The stowaways in the back get attacked by the tarantulas. And then they have to make an emergency landing in a small town. And fucking shit goes down. Because once they emergency land in that small town, the tarantulas get loose. And we have a Jaws situation on our hands. Because the mayor, played by Burt Remsen, who is in Terror Vision, among other things, doesn't want to stop a festival or shut down the factories because it's going to ruin the economy. He doesn't care that there's tarantulas running all over the place. Let's just say that happens. So I haven't heard of anything like that recently. No, never. (laughs) So, so this starts and you know, they crash land. We meet this guy called Joe played by Charles Frank. Who's the young hero. Um, We've got Claude, Claude Aitken's on hand as the guy who runs the local feed store and is also like the head volunteer firefighter. Uh, we've got Pat Hingle from Maximum Overdrive, among other things, playing the town doctor who's kind of a drunk. Uh, we've got Joe's girlfriend, played by Deborah Winters, whose little brother is is played by the lead of Deadly Friend, Matthew Labertero. Um We've got lots of people on hand here to uh, to get attacked by tarantulas. Let's just put it that way. Um, and, and this kind of delivers. Like after they crash, everyone's down trying to dig out the survivors from the plane, and you know the 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 oil, the gasoline is pouring out of the plane, and they so they dig this trench to collect the gas because they're like, oh, we can't let the gas get a, get too saturated or there's going to be an accident and one of the fucking volunteer firefighters comes tearing over the hill on a fucking dirt bike and crashes and his dirt bike slides into the pit of fucking (laughs) gasoline and explodes i'm like what fucking morons live in this town but i'm like that's awesome he fucking blew up a guy he blew up a freaking pit of gasoline like a trench of gasoline okay so be it if that's going to help the tarantulas get out that happens there's a scene where it's just random people being attacked by tarantulas while Joe hooks up with, like, you know, the local doctor to try and figure out where the tarantulas are coming from. The mayor's like, no, we can't shut down anything, you know, and that's going on. And then they show this house and the house has a bunch of kids walking around outside of it. Then the camera zooms in on the plaque outside the house and the house says, School for Autistic Children. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? They have a school for autistic children in this movie. So then, right after that, there's a picnic going on on the hill behind that school with this couple. And she's like, he's like, she's like, oh, oh, we're having so much fun on this picnic. And he's like, oh, just lie down on the blanket. I'll be right back. I got to go get something or whatever. And so she lies back on the blanket and she closes her eyes and she's like, oh, this picnic's the greatest thing ever. And then a tarantula comes along and it's like crawling on her feet and she thinks it's her boyfriend tickling her feet. So it's like, oh, 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 stop it. Stop it. But nope. She opens her eyes. There's fucking tarantulas on her feet. She freaks out. She does a fucking barrel roll down the side of a hill and clugs her head on the side of a fucking tree. And I'm like, score! I'm like, this is the greatest! And then the autistic kids take the tarantulas as pets because that's what autistic kids do, you know. They're just like, oh, oh, tarantula pets. Wee! Um, so that happens. 
it's just this is just ridiculous like you know like i said it's it we don't want to spoil the orange harvest but tarantulas are you know oranges the citrus smell it it attracts the tarantulas so they're already at the factory and then they just come up with plants to stop them where it's like they get wasps they figure out a way that they like they figure out that the sound of wasps paralyze the friggin' tarantulas. <laughs> so they go and they, they they attract them all to the factory with the with the citrus and they play the wasp noise over a loudspeaker. <laughs> and then they all go in with their tongs and pick up the tarantulas which are paralyzed and throw them in pails of alcohol because that kills them and you know, and it goes from there and it's pretty fun. <laughs> I mean I gotta say. Like they don't make like they don't make anything quite like 70s, like insect creature run amok movies that were made for TV. They really don't anymore. And and, and this was like ridiculous. It was a total Jaws ripoff. It had a school for autistic children. I mean, what the fuck more do you need? Like, really? Come on. That barrel roll scene alone makes this worth the price of admission. And at least getting to see Tom Atkins and Howard Hesman for the first five, ten minutes, worth the price of admission. Um Co-written by Gurdon Trueblood, who also wrote uh, a movie I mentioned on uh, our 70s TV movies called The Savage Bees. He's the writer of that one, too, which has the scene at the end with all the Boy Scouts trapped in the bus with all the bees right. surrounding them. So this guy knows what the fuck is up, this Gordon Trueblood. <laughs> he knows how to make these things work. So it's pretty fun, I gotta admit. Tarantulas the Deadly Cargo is totally worth the 95 minutes I spent with it. I mean... There's nothing quite like 70s TV movies. Let's be honest. No, there really isn't. I mean, this is much better than Ants, the one that came out the same year that has uh, Suzanne Somers in it. Not mm-hmm. quite on the level of the Savage Bees or whatever, but totally worth it. You can buy this DVD for like five bucks. I think you should yeah. go for it. Buy it. Buy it, man. Pair it up with Kingdom of the Spiders and you got one fuck of an evening right there. <laughs> so, I have it on a two-pack with ants. They yeah. came together. Yeah, I, that's how I bought them too. Uh, this oh, is the yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. This is the better of the two. Yeah. So yeah, tarantulas, the deadly cargo, pretty rad. That sounds <laughs> rad, man. That sounds really cool. Like what? What? Like just some of the choices. Like why the school for autistic children? Like what a dumb choice. And like. Why the oranges and the buzzing sound? Like that's just like. Well, and why have like, it so? Why have it that everything's kicked into motion by a, a fucking volunteer fireman like tooling in on his dirt bike, like woohoo, and smashing into a into a friggin' trench of gasoline? Like why? <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Let's go to a more serious note. Um, I watched the, another sequel. That seems to be what I've been doing. Um, I watched Ip Man 2, which okay. is, of course, is a sequel to Ip Man from 20... This one's from 2010. Again, directed by Wilson Yip. Um, so I really loved Ip Man. I, I was totally blown away by it. Uh, Donnie Yen starring as the legendary martial arts master who um, originated the Wing Chun style of funding, fighting and also was... Uh, probably most famous for training Bruce Lee. Um, So this continues on from the first movie. Now, the first movie was really focused on the political situation in in, uh, China, 
how the Japanese were taking over and kind of how Hitman had to like um, was taken from like a really you know a, a kind of a prosperous way of life and, and became almost like a slave and basically had to fight back against the Japanese who are doing a lot of really bad things. And I thought it was really, really engaging and uh, loved the storyline, loved all the actors. Um, and just it just really felt like a real classy movie with some really, really awesome fight scenes. So this is the sequel. Um, so Donnie Yen is back. Um, this one's more focusing on the um, difference between two different styles of Kung Fu, the Wing Chun style and the Hong Kong style. Um, and it's basically Donnie Yen um, is trying to start his school and he's struggling to get students. He eventually starts to get some students, but then um, this pisses off um, Sammo Hung, who's um, running the uh, up the opposing style of Kung Fu's um, school across town. And there's also um, some shakedowns happening where people have to pay protection money. So as students are starting to sign up to Donnie Yen's school, uh, Sambo Hung's basically sending his kind of henchmen or his students to go and fuck things up. So there's, you know, a number of different fights happening, like between the students and things like that. Um, eventually, um, Donnie Yen's told you have to basically prove yourself to become a, a teacher in the city. So there's a pretty great fight scene with him and Sammo Hung fighting on like this um, table, like that's precariously balanced, and they have to, they're both on the table, and the table can't fall over, and they have to get to the table by jumping on chair legs. It's hard to describe, but it's pretty fucking cool that they're fighting on this table that like keeps almost falling, and then they ride it and stuff. Pretty awesome stuff. There's a pretty great wet market fight, and we've heard all about wet markets lately, thanks to coronavirus. Um, but it was pretty weird to see that in a, in a movie, in a fight scene. <laughs> uh, but that was a pretty great fight as well. Uh, Shu Wong Fan returns from the first one, who, of course, was uh, we know from the story of Ricky. Um, he doesn't have nearly as much to do in this, nor does Simon Yam, one of my favorite Hong Kong actors. He's back as well, but with a very, very uh, small part. Okay, so after all this kind of initial stuff where we're in schools and then we're establishing the relationship between Hung, or, um, Sammo Hung and um, Donnie Yen, um, they basically end up, end up coming to an agreement where they're both able to teach. But then this these um, they're either British or Australians, they come in and they're like, we're going to show you guys all the real fighting. We're going to show you American boxing. So this, they they decided they're going to put on this American boxing match. And the champ is this guy named Twister. And he's this, like, real asshole, one of those really asshole, like, champ guys that's a super obnoxious and is, like, kind of just being a dick and, like, punching people out for no reason. Kind of like the villain in a Rocky movie. So, and he was great. This guy was played by Jaron... Darren Shallow, um, who has been in a number of low-budget action movies. I didn't really know him too well, but I thought he was an, a, a great villain. Um, but what happens is this turns into kind of... It does turn into pretty much a Rocky movie. The, the Twister's fighting people. Something tragic happens. Donnie Yen basically has to take him on in, in the uh, final, final scenes. So although this was really good, I mean, it had tons of fighting, tons of action... 
love I love Donnie Yen. I think he's probably one of the best in the business right now, if not the best in the business. Um, the the fight choreography is all good. There was never a shortage. Like basically every fifteen minutes, you had a pretty great fight. Um, but, but I was a bit disappointed that we didn't have kind of all those undertones of the first one, and that this basically just became kind of a little guy like a David versus versus Goliath sports movie. And from that perspective, I was a little let down. Not saying it's bad, just not on the level of the first one. So disappointing for sure. A um, little concerned about the third one because I know Mike Tyson is one of the stars. Oh. So I hope I'm hoping it's not Donnie Yen versus Mike Tyson. I'm hoping there's more to it than that. But um, yeah, like it's too bad because the first the first movie was like a, kind of this historical kung fu epic that was really great. And this just felt a little bit more generic, and um, yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a letdown. But um, still looking forward to watching the next one. I think I think it's a pretty cool series, and uh, I know it has got a lot of really great reviews and things like that. I just don't. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about them, but so I'm glad to be watching them. They're all on Netflix. They're all very easy to see. There's four of them out now. Um, there's also an offshoot one um, called uh, Legend Is Born. Um, and starring one of the guys from this playing Yip Man in that movie. So there's a lot of movies about this character, too. I mean, he is a, like a legendary figure in martial arts. Um, but yeah, it's just not quite as good as the first one. So if you're expecting this to best the original, not going to happen, but it's it's still a pretty entertaining fight movie. Yeah, so that's Yip Man 2. Okay, well, three sequels for you. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you don't have any more. You're you're a sequel guy. Um, I'm gonna talk about a documentary. Let's talk about a documentary. Um, okay. This showed up on Shutter. I'm kind of curious about it, so I decided to give it a go. It's from it's from last year. It's a movie called Scream Queen: My Nightmare on Elm Street, mm. which is a focus on Mark Patton, who was the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2: Freddy's Revenge. Um, it kind of just goes over how. Um, he was uh, he was a gay actor in Hollywood. Uh, over the years, Nightmare on Elm Street Two has been come to be known as a uh, very uh, gay movie, I guess you'd call it, because there's a lot of subtext in there and a lot of scenes that could be considered, you know, homoerotic or whatever. Um, basically, it's saying how that movie ruined Mark Patton's career as an actor that he stopped acting basically after Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And, you know, it was only the third film he had appeared in at the time because the first one was Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is a Robert Altman movie uh, because he appeared in the stage play before it was adapted into a film. And then he was in another movie in between that before he was in Elm Street 2. And uh, so it, it's kind of interesting in the in the fact that you're like, you know, now he's getting more popular because now people are looking at the movie with this new light. Like, oh, this is totally a gay horror movie, the first gay horror movie. All this are homoerotic subtext that, you know, they, you know at the time did we know this was going on so on and so forth and um now he's on the convention circuit and kind of like cashing in on that you know part of it um and i thought it was interesting in some ways like uh there was stuff about the aids epidemic hitting 
in the early in the mid 80s and how that affected his life and how it affected the people around him and how it affected the gay community in general and i thought that stuff was really intriguing and really interesting and and really like you know informative because you know like we know basics about it but to get the the view from someone who actually was living through that and who had you know a boyfriend die of that or whatever was just kind of you know very interesting to see in a film-based documentary really like that stuff was cool but then there was other things in this where i'm like okay he quit acting in 1985 you tracked him down for i think it was like you tracked him down in 2015 for the 30-year anniversary of this to go to a con a convention with that reunited the cast and crew and everything so the documentary doesn't tell us what he did in the meantime like he's living oh. in Mexico. He's living in Mexico with his boyfriend. They're saying he did painting a little bit, but it's like, what did he do to sustain himself <laughs> in the 30 years he wasn't acting? Like he's running a shop underneath his apartment, but it just looks like a shop filled with trinkets. Like, is he living like a super simple life where he doesn't care if he has much money? Like that he's only has enough money to get by on it never really says and i was like i kind of want to know if someone abruptly quits something they love to do because they're upset about you know the backlash from this movie or how he felt from this movie like i feel like my homosexuality was exploited by this movie so i quit acting why like what did you do how <laughs> did you deal with that right and I didn't feel like this addressed that quite enough. Like, like basically, he was on this thing where he's like, I'm on this crusade. I want to confront the writer, David Chaskin, about stuff he said in the media where he said – where they asked him, did you write this as a gay movie? He's like, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I totally didn't. But then and when you look at the script, you could totally tell it was a gay movie. I want to confront him. And that was his big thing. Like, I want to confront the writer. And that's in here, but it's really not much. Like, it's built up to be this big thing. And then they meet, and he's like, they have a five-minute conversation. He's like, I forgive you. Like, no, this guy ruined your acting <laughs> career. Like, yeah. I want a little bit more conflict than that. Like, I'm not expecting you to go in there and tear his face off or whatever, but I just felt like the filmmakers, uh, Roman Cimenti and Tyler Jensen were just building upon this, like building it, building it, building it through the whole thing that there was going to be this big confrontation. And then when the confrontation happened, they were like, oh, this didn't go down the way we wanted it to. It was very civil. And they apologized. He apologized to him and they forgave each other. How can we bring something, some suspense out of this or drama out of this? And I feel like they didn't have anything to work with. So I was like, OK, yeah. well, that's kind of a bubber. And you know, and there was a lot of focus on the fandom around, you know, um, you know, the gay community rallying behind this movie and rallying behind Mark Patton as a as a as an actor, like as a as a representative of their community. And that stuff, I'm like, okay, that's okay, that's okay stuff too. But it's like it's hard to take when you, when you see what's going on in the horror community right now. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like, it's hard to look at it in that light 
in with a lot of the stuff that's going on right now and i mean we're going to get into that still a little later when i talk about another movie that's more related (laughs) to what's going on but i just wanted more of that i mean and there was a scene where after the reunion the cast members and director jack shoulder all got together at the hotel lounge and discussed you know the history of the movie and filming it and how they felt when it was being made and how they feel like it was approached in this uh, homosexual content. But we have the director, Jack Shoulder, who made one of my favorite like sci-fi horror movies of the 80s with The Hidden, sitting there and saying, oh, I was totally unaware that this was a gay movie. And I'm like, oh, fucking bullshit, buddy. You totally knew. But he's like, I have no idea. I really didn't know. And I'm like, no, I don't buy it. Like, you knew. Yeah. And so I just I was just I was had issues with that kind of stuff like and I had issues with like should we really care about Mark Patton that much like really to be honest with you like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is not a very good movie we had an episode about that movie way back when we first started where we fully established it's not a very good movie it's probably one of my least favorites of the series so. Yeah. I mean, I get what they're trying to do, but I don't really feel like it's necessary for a feature-length documentary, especially when he discussed this kind of stuff in the Never Sleep Again documentary that covered the entire series. Like, there was kind of – that was – he says that was kind of the impetus to get him back on the convention circuit was appearing in Never Sleep Again documentary, basically. But it's like – but if you had disconnected yourself from the industry, why did you feel the need to come back? Exactly. Like, really? Like, why? Why are you in conventions now? Like, I don't like it's it's hard to to figure out for me personally, because I'm not really, you know, the convention, the whole convention thing doesn't really I don't really have that experience. So I can't talk to it. But it just seems to me like if you were happy being retired from that industry for 30 years, why would a convention drag you back and make you want to continually do these conventions? I mean, the same thing. Felissa Rose kind of did the same thing, right? When Sleepaway Mm -hmm. Camp become this cult item. And I just don't get it personally. But maybe that's just money. Big money. Big money for them, right? I know, but in this movie, it's trying to make it look like it's not about money. It's more about him connecting with yeah, well, people who are kind of like him and, and who understand what he went through back in 1985, the persecution he went through. And I'm like, well, really? Like, I'd, I'd love how he's charging for an autograph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like uh, there is some stuff in like What's that? I didn't hear what you said. Um, But um, I just feel like there was some stuff in here that was worthy of seeing, like all the stuff about the AIDS epidemic and all that. I thought that stuff was was legitimately interesting. But I just felt like the stuff wedged around that stuff. Like I thought, you know, talking about how he became an actor and then the AIDS epidemic and all that. I thought that stuff was okay. But then the whole confrontation thing that really didn't amount to anything much. And then the 
the fact that he's on the convention circuit. I'm tired of documentaries that are about convention circuits, like that one about uh, Sam Jones, Life After Flash. Like, I'm just tired of that kind of stuff because it's like, yeah, we get it. You go to conventions. People appreciate what you did in the past. Do we really need a feature-length documentary about it? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, this, this sounds like it should have been like a, well, like a extra on the Elm Street 2 disc. Yeah. Like, like a 30-minute, you know, catch up with Mark Patton or something. Like. <laughs> yeah, like, don't get me wrong. I didn't dislike this. I thought it had – it does have some value to it, but I – I'm seeing a lot of people within the horror circles going crazy over this, and I don't get it. So, you know, I, I get it. We're in the 21st century. We're a lot more attuned to this kind of stuff, the treatment and the fairness and all that stuff. Well, unless you're in the States right now, but but that's another story. But we're, we're we know this, and but at the same time, this is a special feature, like you said, for a Blu-ray that didn't need to be feature length. So no, I totally agree. I'm not interested in this at all. I know it played theatrically out here too, and yeah, usually I would go for stuff like this, but yeah, care enough to want to watch 90 minutes of this guy. Yeah. So that's a uh, scream queen. My Nightmare on Elm Street. Soft recommend, just yeah. for just for the first half. All right, all right. So let's. Uh, all right, we've got a double whammy here with a Dollarama and Fangoria Freight Fest. Oh no! <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we're gonna continue down the Fangoria Freight Fest path. Uh, with a Dollarama special called Fragile from uh, 2005. Directed by uh, Jaume Balaguerro, um, who the genre fans will know as uh, one of the co-directors of Rec and Rec 2, and I believe Rec 4. Um, so he definitely went on to big and better things after this movie. Um, yeah, so this is... Um, a movie starring Calista Flockhart, uh, a.k.a. Ally McBeal, um, as Amy Nichols. She's a nurse at this children's um, hospital that's shutting down. The children are going to be moved to a different hospital, and um, there's, like, a couple more nights left of the current hospital. So, like, basically everything's been boxed up. They've been they've moved most of the shit out, but there's a few kids left that are going to be transported out over the next few days. This movie was made after after Ally McBeal's the success of Ally McBeal, which was a huge show back in the early 2000s and late 90s. And this is before Calissa Flockhart went to uh, co-star in another show called Brothers and Sisters. So this was kind of a feature she threw in between two major parts of her television career. I've I've thought I've always thought she was fine. I mean, she's not a you know nothing great, but I thought she was. Uh, charming and Allie McBeal and um, I think she's a decent actress and she certainly held her own in this movie um, the movie um, so she arrives there um, and then you know strange things start to happen at the abandoned kids hospital like we haven't seen this a million times either um, so you know and there's rumors of this me- mechanical woman that uh, comes out at night, night like this ghost that's like um 
yeah, like got like made made partially out of metal. Um, that's supposed to be really scary, and that all the kids are freaked out about. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about this one just because we have seen this kind of story lots. That being said, um, I thought it was really well done. I mean, clearly you can see this director knows what he's doing and which is why he went on to be able to pull off a movie like Wreck right after this. It seemed like almost like a, you know, like his practice run at, at something a little a little more original. Um there are some great good actors in this. Um, we've got Elena Anaya, um, a Spanish actress, um, who's been in like some Amaldivore films. Uh, she was also in, unfortunately, in Van Helsing. Uh, we also get a very brief appearance by Ivana Baccaro, who played Ophelia, Ophelia in Pan's Labyrinth, the little girl in Pan's Labyrinth. So kind of neat to see her. Um, I thought the kids in this were all really good and normally i don't like kid actors in in horror movies a lot of good atmosphere um and yeah yeah i mean it was it was entertaining enough it was surprisingly entertaining this is one of the ones in this in this um fangoria fright fest series where i was like well i have been dreading most of them but i was really dreading this one i'm like oh fuck kids kids in a van hospital yawn but it actually did help hold my interest pretty well and that was mainly due to the performances um, led by uh, Flockhart. So I think if that's your thing, if you like these kind of creepy ghost movies in abandoned places with children involved, um, and there are a lot of them, um, then this is <laughs> definitely one. This is definitely one you'd want to check out because it's actually pretty good uh, for for what it is. Not really my thing, but um, but I do recognize that this is the way this was pulled off was was pretty well done. So, yeah, I, I give it a recommend from that respect. This is actually the first one in the Frangoria Freight Fist series I am giving a recommend to. So it, it, it was a surprise. Um, I, I just, I'm not really that into this genre, so that's why I'm just really have a lot to say about it, because um, I haven't seen a lot of these kind of movies. I know there's a lot of them exist, but I just, these kind of movies just don't usually appeal to me. So, um, but it was, it was pretty good. There's apparently a an extended if you get a, like a Spanish import uh, the Fangoria Freight Fest version was only missing a bit of language but it sounds like it might have also been missing some gore and stuff like that as well but yeah effective little thriller yeah I have the dollar I'm a release of this as well actually so yeah I got that going for me <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out eventually I mean I'm not into the whole ghost kids or evil kids or whatever I'm not into that, like, in a, ooh, it's an abandoned orphanage or something like that. You know, it just seems yeah, it seems so overdone by now. But, you know, it really awesome. does. But this, this was done, yeah, and this was done quite a while ago, too, right? I mean, this maybe this was one of the, you know, more original ones. I don't know. Like, it just seemed, compared to the other movies I've seen in this series so far, this seemed like a bit more of a step up. <laughs> That's for sure. Okay, so, um, I'm going back to the 70s again. This is my third 70s movie, Josh. You're always wow, so, so You're always so, so stunned. I know you're always so stunned when I do this. Uh, this is a movie I've known about for a while, always been curious about, and uh, one weekend I'd bought the Blu-ray during a Kino sale, and one weekend the girlfriend and I were like, "Let's finally watch this movie. I'm sure it's going to be good." And that's a movie from 1976 called "The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane," uh, directed by Nicholas yeah. 
Gessner, uh, starring Jodie Foster as a 13-year-old girl. And uh, so she lives in this, like, kind of this gothic-y country house. Uh, she obviously doesn't live with any parents. She's by herself. And the opening scene has her neighbor showing up, played by Martin Sheen. And he's just this super creepy guy who gives off these, like, these vibes, like... He's totally a pedophile, basically. He's giving off these creepy vibes. He's kind of flirting with her and being inappropriate with her. And I'm like, okay, so right away this movie has got a really weird tone going on, which it totally does. Like, it's super weird. It's like one of these Canadian co-productions that was like, you're just like, how did this get made now? Like, now 44 years later, I'm like, this movie would not be made these days. Like, only in the 70s can a movie like this be made. So she's at home. She's a smarter than her age. She lives by herself, basically. Martin Sheen's the creepy neighbor. Martin Sheen's mom comes over to warn him about her, to warn her about him, as does the town sheriff. They all show up and like, oh, yeah, you got to be a little bit wary of him. He's kind of a creep. Like, they tell her, basically, oh, about a year ago, he, he dragged a young girl into the bushes and got into trouble. They didn't do anything about him dragging the girl into the bushes. They're just like, oh, he's the town creep. Just stay away from him. You don't want to be near him. And then Scott Jacoby, who starred in a TV movie from the 70s, I know you talked about, called Bad Ronald. Uh, He shows up as this nerdy magician kid called Mario who kind of befriends her. And then he like, uh, you know, and then he kind of like starts to fall for uh, Jodie Foster's character even though he's like three years older he's about 16 17 she's about 13 um, so from there it becomes like a whole bunch of these bizarre what the fuck moments uh, there's a scene where she's having a dinner with her new friend Mar- Mario and the co- the sheriff shows up and is like oh, I'm Mario's uncle and blah 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 and then Sheen shows up and you know he he shows up and he's like so threatening and ominous he's like you know, smoking cigarettes and, you know, he's making threats and, you know, as much as Mario's trying to stop him, he's like, fuck off, little kid. Basically, I'm just here for Jodie Foster and that sweet 13 year old. <laughs> and I'm just like, fuck, this is like, this is wrong. Like, this is wrong. And then it just becomes like this, this kind of like psychological thriller. It's it's kind of like mind games between Foster's character and Sheen's character. It's, um, you know, uh, help from Jacoby to trick the cop into thinking her that thinking her dad lives there so that she doesn't get put into child into, you know, foster care. It's uh, uh, underage nudity scenes, which were very uncomfortable. Um, it's just it's just uh, it's so bizarre. It's so morbid. It's so 70s. Like, this movie would not be made today. Um, I don't want to give too much about the plot away because there are there'd be too many spoilers. But it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty weird one. But I I liked this a lot because it's a pretty weird one. And I know that because the theme of this movie is basically that Martin Sheets character is a pedophile. I probably should like this. But I did. Uh, it's so weird. It's such a little piece of bizarre cinema. And I can understand why Scorpion releasing and Kino put this out on Blu-ray. Because I can see this movie easily getting a cult following. 
Um, on the interview on the desk, Sheen's just kind of like, yeah, I can't believe I made this movie. And then I'm looking into this. I'm like, dude, a year before this in 1975, you made a TV movie with Linda Blair where you friggin' f- where she was a 12 year old and you took her out to a cabin and you fell in love with her. How do you yeah. mean you don't can't believe you made this movie? Like, you know, <laughs> come on, dude. Like, seriously. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked this. I don't want to go too much into the plot. Um, but yeah, it's a weird one. Um, and I really think that, that Jodie Foster around this time in 76, like in 76, she was in Freaky Friday. She was in Taxi Driver. You know, she, yeah. she was in Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. Like she was an actress who was always playing older than her age. And I think she's like one of the best child actors of the 70s, to be honest with you, because she always felt like she was playing older than her age and she was always good at playing older than her age but then she'd make a movie like this and a movie like taxi driver which are totally heavy fair with like really dark themes and the same year like i said she made freaky friday for disney and she made the bugsy malone movie with scott bayo the alan parker movie which was like a gangster musical with kids where and where their machine gun shot cream pies instead of bullets you know, yeah. like, like it's it's a it's a really weird movie. Highly recommend it if you're into bizarre cinema. But I really don't want to talk too much more about it because I feel like it's a movie that someone needs to discover and find out for themselves. Um, there is some stuff that might be considered a little bit problematic to more modern audiences, but you have to take that for what it is. It's a product of the late '70s. Just go with the tone, go with the performances, and just go with how fucking creepy and weird it is, and you'll you should like this. It's readily available on Prime to watch if you don't want to buy that Blu-ray. But I'd recommend if you're a physical collector, give that Blu-ray a shot. Kino has lots of sales all the time. Go for it. Uh, so yeah, I, I I gotta recommend this one, even though I feel a little bit creepy recommending it. So yeah, have you seen this? What? No, I've never seen it. What are the extras on the desk? Um, the extras on the disc is a commentary track and a, an interview with Martin Sheen and then a Skype conversation between Martin Sheen and the director. So it's oh, an interesting cool. it's an interesting batch. So um, I think the commentary is it's the director and I think Sheen participated in the commentary, too. I can't remember, but it's a pretty good batch, oh. but it's a really weird it's just one of those movies that I was always kind of on my radar as a yeah. like a cult film. And I know MGM put it out on DVD back in the day. But just to see like an actor like, like Martin Sheen who was coming off of Badlands and this is prior to Apocalypse Now being in such a weird movie like this. And then, like I say, Foster, her parents letting her do a movie like this. Like there's yeah. – like there's – there's a nudity, a nudity scene in this movie that is supposed to be her character, who is a 13-year-old girl in this movie. I mean, yeah. it's it's not her. It's her. But the creepy thing is, is the body double they used in this movie is her actual older sister. So her oh, parents, weird. her parents must have been fucking hippies like there's no tomorrow or something to not have <laughs> issues with her doing a movie like this and a movie like Taxi Driver when she was 13 years old. Yeah. But yeah, 
this is like a really weird cult item and like i said i highly recommend this if you're into those offbeat not quite acceptable these days 70s cinema that that you can just sit there watching it and being like this is really strange but i'm really digging this at the same time so that's what i so this is totally worth seeing all right i have the book somewhere at home it's actually pretty easy to get access i wonder if i should read that first yeah it is based on the novel you're right so maybe yeah Huh. Okay. No, oh, sounds cool. I, I actually wasn't that interested, but now I am. Yeah, I, cool. I, I after researching this and I heard about and I saw that he did uh, Sweet Hostage, the one that's called with Linda Blair the year yeah. prior, I went and ordered the, the Warner Archive DVD of that. So I'll report back on Martin Sheen being a creepy, uh, a creepy skis on a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> Two creepy skis, Martin Sheen liking underage girls. And one of them's Jodie Foster, and the other one's Linda Blair. I mean, Linda Blair is kind of the queen of 70s uh, teenage teen movie TV movies. Let's be honest here. Like Born Innocent, Sweet Hostage, and Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage yeah. Alcoholic. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Come, yeah. Like, like, come on. <laughs> so, yeah, Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, recommended for sure. Right on. All right. Um, going to keep going with the uh, Universal box set um the 30 movie collection um so again in order the next title was dracula's daughter from 1936 Ooh. directed by directed by uh lambert killian did a ton of shit but probably best known for directing the original uh appearance of batman in a in a movie serial which is pretty interesting to watch if you could look it up on youtube um if you didn't know there was a batman from that long ago there was okay so this one um now we're getting into territory with the universal that i haven't seen these movies this one was the basically the only sequel to dracula that is in existence in the universal canon obviously hammered it a whole crazy bunch of them and uh there's been many remakes and many offshoots but this is the only official dracula sequel in the uh universal monsters this is also the end of the first era of the Universal Monsters um, and the end of Carl Lamele's uh, reign as the uh, Universal president. So he's the guy that basically was running Universal at the time, basically responsible for the beginning of the Universal Monsters. And after this movie was shot, um, was unceremoniously tossed from the studio uh which decided, had decided to go in a different direction. So there wasn't actually another Universal Monster movie for a few years after this because they uh, didn't want to make horror movies anymore. Um, so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of significance behind this movie. Um, it's also um, significant for um, being the first depiction of um, a lesbian vampire, which, uh, of course, became a big thing about 40 years later. But um, this was... Um, you know, as you know, it had some had some ties to Bram Stoker, but also um, clearly had some ties to uh, Sheridan Lefanu's uh, Carmilla. Um, so a lot of stuff that I didn't had no idea about any of this when I was going into this. I was just like, oh, another Dracula movie, yay! Uh, without Bela Lugosi, double yay. Um, but yeah, I I ended up liking this quite a bit. The movie opens um, pretty much 
well, it opens immediately after the first Dracula, um, where the cops arrive at um, um, at Dracula's castle, or where Dracula was killed off at the end of the original. Um, they find Renfield at the bottom of the stairs, getting thrown down the stairs, and Von Helsing coming out of the uh, crypt where he has just staked Dracula. So it literally uh, starts at that point. Um, Von Helsing is basically put in custody, and then this strange woman named Count Zaleska shows up, played by Gloria Holden, and she takes the corpse of Dracula and burns it on a pyre because she's trying, she's obviously Dracula's daughter, and she's trying to free herself of the curse by burning Dracula. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't work, and uh, she um, kind of gets the hots for this guy named. Uh, Dr. Garth, Jeffrey Garth, played by Otto Kruger from, uh, he was in tons of shit. He was in like High Noon, Saboteur with Hitchcock, Murder My Sweet, tons of great movies. Uh, so she's kind of got into him. He's kind of onto her a little bit. Uh, he's also got this really spunky um, secretary named Janet, played by Mar Marguerite Churchill. A really great chemistry between the two of those. Um, a lot of fun. Um, but, um, after, when the Countess is, um, you know, she, she's living with her manservant, she's trying to figure out what, who she is and how to get rid of the curse, uh, she's kind of into this doctor guy, but she also has a thing for picking up, uh, comely young ladies and bringing them back to her apartment and asking them to undress so she can photograph them or paint them, um, uh, in a very, very leery ways that it surprised even me for this night for 1936. Yeah. I was just uh, like, thinking that. Yeah. Totally came out of nowhere. I was not expecting this in a universal monster movie. I mean, there's nothing graphic happening, but the, uh, the tones, the, um, undertones that are happened going on and, uh, um, there, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, what they, what they were getting at here, which totally surprised me. Um, the model um, in that particular scene is played by Nan Gray, who um, absolutely beautiful. She returns a few years later. Um, Holden was awesome. She was. Uh, she definitely had a kind of like like Bella did. She had this Eastern European look to her and voice and. Um, Kind of this like like disconnected way of acting um, that really really worked for the character um, and apparently that came a lot from the fact that she did not want to play this role she did not want to become another Bela and actually hated the character and so didn't really give a shit when she was playing the character but it actually ended up working quite well for the for the movie um, this is also I would say an early goth movie um, the manservant that she has, this guy named Sando, is this total like downer goth dude, um, which he was pretty almost almost hilarious, like almost in a like what we do in the shadows kind of way. Like he was so over the top in his in his kind of gothy dourness. Um, I thought he was super entertaining as well. Um, and even when um, uh, the countess is calling um, the Doctor Garth his name. With her accent, she keeps calling him Dr. Goth, which I thought was pretty rad as well. Um, and just the look of this movie also just very, uh, as, as a lot of these movies were inspired by um, um, German expressionalism, 
um, really great set, set design, really great use of lighting, um, and and it was the black and white really works for this movie. So um, super entertaining. Um, I was totally taken by surprise by this one. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty stoked to keep going now. Like uh, this went by in no time, and um, really enjoyed this one. Um, I don't know if I mean a lot of people say that they like this better than than the original Dracula, which you and I have talked about being a little dull. Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's it's certainly um, certainly up there. This is a really good one um, that I think deserves more mentions um, when people are talking about the classic classic monsters. So yeah, uh, another successful run. Um, it looks like from now after after this one um we're going to be getting away from the like 70 minute running times that i've been enjoying and uh <laughs> going more into standard feature length of like 90 to 100 um but i'm i'm looking forward to what's next but this was a this was a pretty cool one yeah it's so dracula's right. daughter it's really weird to hear that a movie in the 30s had these thinly veiled like I'm bringing you back to my apartment or to my house to take pictures of you kind of stuff. Like I wouldn't have expected oh, yeah. that at all. No, so that, me neither. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Cause it is this pre code, isn't it? I think. Uh, yeah. 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 Which would probably explain how they could get away with that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I, I, I haven't seen this one personally. Like, I Universal's eluding me. It always has like Universal monsters. So I'm um, I'm glad you're going through the set because then I can kind of pick and choose when I decide to which ones are worthy of my time. I guess. Yeah. Well, I think this is. I, I it's been eluding me for years as well, and I think this is the only way I'm gonna do it. So I'm. I'm but I'm actually, the quality is good. I mean, I think these are classics for a reason, and. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty stoked now to continue. Like the, they just seem to be getting better. So yeah, there you go. Dracula. Okay, well, I I might as well talk about this one. I mean, I felt really weird watching this, considering all the recent behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on with um, with Cinestate and uh, Fred Williamson and all that. Uh, this is a 2020 movie called VFW that I'm going to talk about in a minute here um so i mean if if you're if you're in the horror community at all or if you know anything about the horror community you you know that stuff's been going down with with cinestate lately and uh you know and and with other things like with with horror you know podcasts now and like um uh the fangoria and the saska sisters and all this kind of stuff like there's been a lot of stuff being dragged to the forefront in the last couple of weeks that is is making it very difficult to be like a horror fan at times because you're like there's a lot of toxic shit floating around right now and 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 Cinestate was the kickoff for this and Cinestate is a is a film company uh Dallas Sonier is the the head of who also bought out Fangoria which is how Fangoria is tied into this and uh they had a thing come out about one of their one of the producers who works with them a lot uh you know getting in trouble for you know sexual deviancy basically and then that kind of grew from there like stuff kept coming out and even during this movie uh Fred Williamson co-stars in it and there was a report coming out that he had been harassing the you know the the costume and makeup ladies who were working on set like he was you know 
kind of being unjust towards them, like, you know, flirty, being too flirty or smacking them on the butt or something along those lines, right? And then even the director of this, Joe Bagos, had to come out and say, hey, I didn't know this was going on on the set of this movie. It's a load of crap, so on and so forth. So that's why when I actually put this on, I felt super creepy to be watching it because I'm like, mm-hmm. with all this stuff yeah. going on, I was like, yeah, I rented this and my rental's about to... uh to run out so i i gotta watch it but it just i i'm like i i had it in the back of my head but i'm trying to like not let it affect my viewing of the actual movie so uh kind of kind of a bummer all the stuff that's been going on and uh hopefully this uh starts to sort itself out a little bit so that we don't feel ashamed of being horror fans after a while because it's been a rough ride lately it's been a rough ride um so VFW is basically it's not really a horror movie per se. It's a um it's kind of like a, a mashup of Assault on Precinct 13 and maybe like Green Room or something along those lines. It's like one it's a siege movie basically. Um so uh it's directed by Joe Bigos like I said. This is a guy who is kind of getting a little bit of traction in the indie horror slash, you know, B-movie world. He made a movie last year called Bliss, which is on Shudder, which I haven't seen. He made a movie called Mind's Eye, which is kind of... I didn't really enjoy it that much. It was kind of like a scanner's homage in a way. And then he also made a movie called Almost Human, which I know has gotten a little bit of praise. Um, This is him getting a bit more of a budget, uh, getting a pretty good cast of character actors, and running with it. So, what this is, it starts with... Um, it just starts with this text crawl that's like, in the future, everyone's getting addicted to this new drug called hype, and it's making everybody maniacal and so on and so forth. And then the crawl's going, and the synthy score's going, and the synthy score, I'm I'm like, is this a John Carpenter movie? Like, like literally, this the the crawl seems like it's the beginning of Escape from New York or something like that. The synthy score sounds like a John Carpenter movie. And then it just becomes this thing where it opens with, you know, kind of like a crack house kind of deal where the drug dealers are in the room and all the junkies come in to get their drugs and something goes down where one of them gets a machete in the head and another one like explodes. And I'm just like, whoa, this is getting off to a, to a kicking off to a good start. And then we are introduced to a bunch of war veterans who across the street from this, it's a movie theater. It's basically being converted into a drug hovel across from the street from that. There's a VFW, which is a veteran, like kind of like a legion for veterans of the war. And we've got the vets played by uh, Stephen Lang from Don't Breathe recently, Fred Williamson, the aforementioned Fred Williamson, Barton Cove, William Sadler, uh, David Patrick Kelly from The Warriors, uh, George Went from Cheers. So it's got like a hell of a cast of these veteran actors. And, And they're kind of like, they're all showing up to spend an evening at the VFW and just chill out and drink some beers and play some pool and have a little bit of fun or whatever. It's just the typical night. It's Stephen Lang's birthday. He's the guy who's the bartender there and is running the place. And they're all like riffing on each other. And they're all kind of sexist, sexist dudes. Cause they're like old guys who have been in the war and they don't really care about that kind of stuff. And then into the picture comes this girl comes charging across the street because she's stolen from the thugs 
and she ends up at the VFW and cue the assault on Precinct 13 plot as all these veterans have to band together to save the girl from the thugs as well as save their own hides as the thugs and a bunch of these hype addicted crackheads storm the building which leads to a whole bunch of violent confrontations over the top gore bloodshed axes chopping heads off heads being stomped and you know just just mayhem for the last half of this film um it's 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 pretty entertaining i gotta admit like i didn't think it was like amazing but i thought it was pretty pretty entertaining i mean with a cast like that how can you really go wrong let's be honest but the thing is these are guys who i idolized when i was younger and in this movie they're looking ancient especially like david patrick kelly like i always picture him as warriors come out to play and in this he is almost unrecognizable because it's like 40 some years later he just looks so ancient and i was just like wow i haven't seen this guy in a while like i really haven't um lang is solid as hell like he's he's really cool in this like he's always so badass um sadler and cove are pretty great cove plays like this guy who's like moved on from the war and has become like the shyster businessman who wants to try and negotiate with the with the drug dealer guys but everyone else is like we're not going to be able to negotiate with them they're going to kill us we got to defend ourselves um We've got um, Dora Madison, who was the lead in Bago's last movie, Bliss, playing this playing Gutter, who's this punk rock looking like right hand man to the to the main drug dealer who is comes over and like gets in the middle of the fray. And she's really cool in this, even though she could have used a little bit more time Uh, that that score, which I talked about, the Cynthia score quite well done um i realized after it's done by steve moore who's part of the half of the duo called zombie who i know you really enjoy yeah um cool yeah um and the the action was a little bit tightly shot at times but i thought and it does overkill itself on the gore but it has a lot of fun moments it's fun to watch this cast the movie has a lot of neon like backgrounds to it the score is great you get to see william sadler sporting a buzzsaw he picks up a buzzsaw and is like look what i found and then he starts killing people with it i mean you can't really go too wrong with this (laughs) i mean obviously it it can't sustain itself for the 92 minutes all the way through but it's pretty good like this is probably this is i mean i've only seen uh mind's eye by bigos but i'd say this is quite a step up from that one and uh, I enjoyed it. It's just unfortunate that all the crap surround had to go down surrounding it right before I watched it. But uh, yeah. But if you're into like Assault on Precinct 13 or films like that, I'd say I'd recommend this one. It, it's worth checking out if you can rent it for cheap or whatever. It's totally worth watching. It's it's fun to see the cast and it's fun to see just a, a siege movie that doesn't doesn't take its foot off the pedal when it comes to pacing or gore effects so yeah it's pretty good pretty good i don't know if you're interested but i'd say it's worth seeing if if you like this kind of thing for sure yeah i wasn't but i am now yeah so Um, yeah it 
it just seemed like a gimmick movie, like from the poster and stuff. But now that I know it's more of a siege movie that doesn't hold back, I uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say check it out if you're into that. That's uh, uh, VFW. All right, so my next title is a uh, movie from Warner Archive. Um, this is called The Squeeze from 1977, um, directed by Michael Apted. Um, so Michael Apted is, uh, I know a lot of his, his um, fame comes from a series of movies called the Up series, which I, I think is a pretty cool idea where he's, um, they're documentaries that he's basically taken a group of people, started filming them at age seven, and then every seven years he goes and makes another movie to see where they're at in life. And I think there's been some pretty surprising results. So I think that's a really neat idea that um, he's, I think they're at like 63 now, which is just crazy. And I think um, it's the last one he said. I think he said he's not going to do any more after the one he just did. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm super curious to watch them all. So he did those, and he also did, like, Gorillas in the Mist. Um, he's done some thrillers, and then he, he also did one of our a GBW favorite, Firstborn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hip isn't hip anymore, man. Uh, all right. So this one is uh, a bit of an anomaly for him because this is a 70s crime movie set in the U.K., and um, I didn't even know this was a British-based movie until it started. And I'm like, why is um, why is Stacy Keach have this British accent? It seems so weird to me because uh, was, I was totally unexpected. Uh, but it opens with Stacy Keach. He's um, a cop. He's drunk. He's on a subway. And he's, like, trying to climb an escalator in a subway station. And is so drunk that he, like, falls down down the stairs backwards and then it ends up being thrown out onto the street by the subway guards and i'm like okay so it's a it's kind of like not a dirty cop movie but uh one of those like really fucked up cops that's like uh got a real bad attitude and um just is barely functioning because he's can't deal with his cop life and is like drinking his himself away um so he's he's introduced um right away and then we're introduced um or then we learn about the fact that he's got this ex um named jill played by carol white um who's with a new a new husband now um named um um oh my god played by edward fox his name is foreman um edward fox of course from forston from navarone day of the jackal lots of great british movies um so Foreman's a bit of a dick, but um, is is the new the new guy for uh, for Stacy Keach's ex. Uh, turns out um, she ends up getting kidnapped in this uh, at this park in a pretty cool kidnapping scene, um, and the main kidnapper is um, uh, David Hemmings from Blow Up, and uh, there's this like cool like seventies like prog rock music playing and. Um, they basically these guys go up to the um, Carol White and her kid and um, basic literally drag them across the park, throw them in a van, and take them take them hostage. Uh, they then reach out to Edward Fox, say that they want ransom, um, and Edward Fox reaches out to Stacy Keach and says, "Dude, like your ex and the mother of your kids has been kidnapped. Can you help me?" So Keach reluctantly says, "Okay," and then the rest of the movie is Keach you know trying to like struggling between trying to figure out what happened to his girlfriend or his or his ex-wife sorry while drinking himself to death and like 
um, kind of stumbling around, failing miserably. So he's trying to, like, you know, he's also got Freddie Starr with him. Freddie Starr was a very famous British comic of the era. And um, in a, this is a dramatic role where he's like this sidekick who's trying to keep Keach focused. Um, thought he did a fucking fantastic job. And again, I totally against hype for this guy. I didn't really know who he was, but I thought he was a great sidekick. So he's trying to keep Keach focused on what he's trying to do. Well, Keach keeps wanting to go to the bar and get hammered. Um, so it's one of those one of those movies where you've got a really flawed main character, and I love movies like this. And they 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 do seem like the seventies were was like the best time for these kind of flicks. Uh, he's got a really fucked up relationship with his kids. He um, you know he's not super popular with like people around town. There's one scene where he's like stripped naked and thrown into like the black end of like London, which I thought was pretty funny but also pretty terrifying. Um, the lead villain is played by Stephen Void, uh, uh, Boyd, sorry, uh, who I know for, as uh, Masala in Ben-Hur, uh, but he has been in tons of stuff. He died very young, died quite um, actually very shortly after this movie. Thought he was a really great, like uh, a really great villain. Um, there was some really surprising, um, some surprising scenes that happened in this movie. One involving a dog. Um, another scene where um, the character of Jill is, is forced to strip and perform for her captors in uh, what I thought was quite a shocking nude scene for the time um, that I wasn't expecting at all. But this is just a really gritty 70s um, British gangster movie um, that's been compared to like movies like Get Carter. I wasn't a huge fan of Get Carter. I think I need to give it a revisit, but it's like it's that kind of movie. It's that like down and dirty London movie where um, this guy's just trying to like get his shit together enough to basically save his ex, and uh, really really cool. Um, it kind of and it ends with a with a with a high sequence like a bank robbery that's depicted on the cover. So I'm not giving anything away there, but that, that was pretty great as well liked it a lot um you know it's de- definitely not for everyone if you're liking your heroes all like pretty and uh and polished and s- saying cool lines all the time this isn't the movie for you but um uh, my, my keach was on fire at this in this time period he always was kind of delivered and he wasn't afraid to make to play characters like this um uh, so i totally dug it but um i think some people might be kind of bored um might not quite get the character when i get what's going on like there's not a lot to like about this guy uh, but there's enough to keep to to have kept me met me going yeah so pretty pretty cool little flick that you can get for super cheap because it's on Warner archive for like 10 bucks on dvd if you go to the right places um but not quite the heist movie that it was that the cover kind of promised that's what it looked like to me but i would i would put this almost more of a crime drama than a than a like action thriller that it kind of looked like right well yeah it was it it was the cover artwork and the fact that stacy keach is in this that made me buy the water archive dvd in the first place right yeah and uh, i know richard harris was initially cast um i mean i can totally see that as well but keach i don't know something about him just really i don't know just he just is really able to capture that kind of broken-hearted downbeat dude and uh especially at this time so he was he was really great so yeah definitely i recommend for sure um but uh but yeah if you might not 
dig in if you're uh, not patient with some 70s movies. <laughs> and that's the squeeze. Squeeze, 1977. So, um, <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's talk about disappointing expectations. Let's talk about the fact that, uh, you know, the, the next movie I'm going to talk about, considering what it's called and who stars in it, I did not fucking sign up for The Notebook. I signed up for a 70s fucking Roger Corman movie. And, you know, that's a movie called The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot, starring mm-hmm. Sam Elliott from 2018. Now, what a fucking title. Let's be honest here. That's one hell of a title. Let's also say that Sam Elliott is fucking cool. And everybody knows that Sam Elliott is cool. We all know Sam Elliott starred in one of my favorite buddy cop movies that no one knows called Shakedown. We know Sam Elliott is the man. We also know that ladies love Sam Elliott. And that's just how it is. However, you don't make a fucking movie called The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot. And make it into a romantic drama. You just don't fucking do it. But however, <laughs> writer-director Robert D. Kurzowski decided to do it. And I don't like him for doing this. I don't like him at all for doing this. So, this movie starts off pretty rad. I mean, it opens with the song Lonely as the Night playing on the soundtrack. While we got Sam Elliott sitting in a bar looking all sad and drinking. And you're like, oh, this, what's up with this dude? And then we're led into flashbacks of him sneaking his way into Nazi Germany. And, you know, he's he makes his way to the headquarters of Hitler. And you see him go in there and he's looking at his watch and it's got a swastika for the hands. And I'm like, that's pretty fun production design. And, you know, he he gets into there and he's walking down the hallway towards Hitler's quarters and he makes this gun out of all these things he had in his pockets. Like he gets the flask and he puts it on top of this pen and it makes this like makeshift gun i'm like this is pretty cool this stuff's pretty fun but then it becomes a thing where it flashes it has the focus on sam elliott's character questioning his mortality and having and making it into this like deep character study of lost loves and regrets and becoming older and not being able to be how you were when you were younger and i'm like what the fuck is this doing in a movie called the man who killed hitler and then bigfoot like seriously what what is this doing here you know and it's got like a moment where he leaves the bar and these thugs try to jump him and he and it's a mistake and he slams a guy through the window and whatever and then it's flashbacks to him falling in love in germany i'm like what the fuck like honestly you don't fucking even kill Hitler until halfway through this fucking movie. Like, what are you doing? It's just so melancholy and and serious, and I'm just like, no, I want, I want, I want a movie directed by Jonathan Demme in the 1970s, put out by New World Pictures with fucking I don't know Robert Ginty or somebody cool. Running around just fucking killing Hitler and then strangling a Bigfoot to death. That's what I fucking want. I don't want a romance movie, okay? I just don't want this. But that's what I fucking got, like I said. So I thought the production design was good. I thought it captured the 1940s Germany pretty well on a lower budget. But the thing is, and the second half, 
has the Canadian government, of course, recruiting him to go into the wild and kill a Bigfoot. Because, you know, we're just fucking full of Yetis and Bigfoot up here in Canada. <laughs> That's all we fucking have, man. We don't have real animals in the woods and in the forest. We just have fucking big feet. That's all that we have up here. We don't even know what a fucking bear or a deer looks like because it's all fucking big feet up here. Like, we go camping and big feet come and visit you at your campsite. That's just how it is in Canada. OK, let's let's just get that out in the open right now. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. Yeah, it's true. But it, it's just basically they're like, oh, the Bigfoot in the forest, he's carrying this deadly disease. And if we don't send you in to kill the Bigfoot, this disease is going to kill everyone in Canada. So let's send you in because you killed Hitler. So you got to be good. And then it has this whole thing where he eventually finds the Bigfoot and they have a bonding moment about mortality. I'm not fucking kidding you. They look at each other in the eyes and he's like, I'm a mortal being and he's a mortal being. Perhaps I shouldn't be doing this. No. Yes. <laughs> this movie is bullshit. <laughs> like, like, come on. I mean, we wouldn't see the $6 million man doing that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a third of the way in this movie and I'm like, Neither thing your title has promised me has happened yet. What is going on here? And then I'm like, why is there a love story going on right now? Why are you focusing on this? Why am I bored? This movie is called The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot. Why am I bored? I'm just like, why is there so many flashbacks that aren't engaging? Like, What's going on right now? I, I I didn't sign up for what I got from this movie. Elliot is good, of course, because he's always good. But this doesn't like if you're going into this like I was expecting like an exploitation movie or something, you're going to be super disappointed in this. And I know yeah. there's people out there who <clears throat> actually thought, excuse me, who actually was like, oh, it's because it wasn't that that I really liked it. I'm like, fuck you. You watched a movie called The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot. You're telling me that you're happy that it wasn't a fucking exploitation movie with Sam Elliott going around snapping the neck of a Bigfoot and fucking throwing Hitler off a high building? Fuck you, you liar. That's exactly what you want from this movie. And I call Robert D. Kurzowski out to task for not delivering that to me. I mean, come on. The Asylum could have made a better movie with that title than you did, and that's saying something. I mean, technically, yeah, it's a well-made movie. Sam Elliott's good in it. It looks all right. But come the fuck on, dude. Don't call your movie that. Just call it I Was in Love in the 40s, and I actually happened to kill Hitler, and I might be going to kill Bigfoot next. But who knows, because I might die soon, too. We don't know what's going to happen. I just know I'm old and sad. That's what this movie should have been called. So, I, uh, it's funny because that's that's exactly what I expected from this movie. Really? Like that's exact. That's why I haven't watched it. Like I've just I've looked at the I saw the title. Yeah. Then I saw the poster. Yeah. And I was like, this is not going to be what I want it to be. Huh. And that's why I ha- that's why I have not watched it. Well, dude, don't. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not su- I'm not surprised, but. Uh, it would have been rad if it was the opposite. <laughs> I know if it was just Sam Elliott going around, like I said, snapping Bigfoot's neck and like killing freaking Nazis left, right and center in the forties, I'd be down. 
But no, yeah. no, yeah, not he, for. He, he could use that. That would be good for Sam Elliott. Yeah, like not for me. I mean, he made another movie called The Movie Star, like yeah. in the last couple of years. It's the same kind of deal. Like, I'm an old movie star, and I'm getting near the twilight of my life, and I'm reflecting. Save that for a drama. This is, yeah. you know, this is a movie with a title like that, and you didn't deliver anything yeah. <laughs> remotely what I expected. So, yeah, quite a bummer. Quite a bummer. Not recommended. Got it. All right. Well, I um, continued my Mill Creek adventure. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure I've got this movie on one of their sets somewhere here. You do. And I tell you, man, shit picks up considerably now. Uh, not that it hasn't been. It's been pretty good so far. Like, do you I, mean shit in a negative connotation? Oh, no. I'm talking in a positive connotation. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So the next, the next one in the in the box set in order is Stanley from 1972. Oh, this is a this is a a killer snake movie that I've never seen. You've never seen it? Okay. No. So because it's funny because we were just talking recently about killer snake movies. Remember we were talking about snakes and and reptiles and we we're like, are there a lot of great you know? And we were like, yeah. there's not really that many good snake movies. Well, there is. <laughs> and it's fucking called Stanley. <laughs> so, That's a glowing uh, endorsement. They should put that on the box. If you thought there was no good snake movies, well, there fucking is. And it's called Stanley. <laughs> That's right. They should put that shit on the box. Uh, okay. So this is directed by William Greffe, um, who uh, gave us Death, Death Curse of Terror 2, and also Mako, the, Sh- the Jaws of Death. Oh. Uh, not that either are glowing, but uh, but he, he is an uh, exploitation director. Opens with a, a hippie theme song and, like, very wilderness family vibes. Oh, hippie fuck yes. Hippie theme song. And, like, literally, it was, like, the hippie song playing, guy, like, canoeing down a river, cut to, like, raccoons frolicking in the in the trees, you know, cut to, like, beavers swimming across the water. Okay, walk. you don't know how, they can't see how excited I am right now. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm like, okay, so I've, I've, especially after just seeing Wilderness film, like I'm like, okay, I'm down with this. I'm digging the song. I'm digging the guy. He kind of looks like Dennis Hopper. So I'm like, okay, let's see where this goes. It's a song like I'm going on a canoe trip. Look at all those fucking animals. This is rad. Pretty much, it's like it was. It was basically like I love being in nature. I love the trees. I love the waterfalls. And it would cut to a waterfall. Like it was pretty rad. <laughs> Yeah, so I, it was. <laughs> this sounds awesome already. <laughs> it, it was pretty great. Okay, so then we, then we get introduced to. Um, okay, I can't, I'm sorry. I, I, my notes don't necessarily go with the plot, but anyway, Stanley's this. He's a white dude that's playing a Native American, so another one of those. But whatever, it was 1972, and that these things happened back then, guys. Um, so he's. Um, but he's this guy, he's like, he's um, kind of turned his back on his tribe. I think he was a war vet, and he's just basically living in the middle of the bio. This was shot in Florida, so it's kind of in the Everglades. So he's just living in a shack in, in the middle of nowhere that's like boat access only. And, he, you know, after his, like, opening theme song, he goes back to his place. And, oh, he also, in the opening, during the opening theme song, he um, gets 
bitten by a rattlesnake. <laughs> mm. But but he doesn't care because like the nice song is playing, so he just you know takes his knife and like cuts the snake bite and squeezes out the venom and continues on his way. He picks up the snake, brings it back with him, and, and that's his new new pet snake called Stanley. Mm. So he um, brings Stanley home, and then then we learn that he's actually got probably. 200 snakes as pets in his house that he keeps in little uh, like those little terrarium containers. So he brings Stanley home. He actually, there's a girlfriend for Stanley that he's got. Um, Stanley and the girl, the girl snake end up making a little bunch of little baby snakes. And, <laughs> and, and uh, Aww, our, cute. <laughs> our hero lovingly takes care of like them all. And they're like his family. Right. And he, I think he, his name's Tim. I think he even says stuff like you're my family. You understand me better than humans. Like it's one of those guys. Right. Anyway, this sounds like Ben, which came out the same year, only with definitely, snakes. yeah, definitely like a Ben Willard ripoff. Um, okay, so then we're introduced to Alex Rocco. Good old Alex Rocco always shows up in these movies and makes them better. So he says he's he's always so over the top too, but he's this factory owner that works that owns this factory that is gathering up snakes and making them into like belts and shoes and shit <laughs> so of course there's conflict between alex Rocco and tim who's like a snake lover right and then Rocco has this like <laughs> sorry i'm just i'm just picturing fucking his horrified look when they're when he sees the factory where they're like skinning snakes and making wallets out of them or something yeah they're trying to like they're trying to have this conversation and tim's like i love the snakes i love them right and Alex Rocco was like, "Well, I just, I need, I want to hire you. I want you to gather up the snakes, and you know." And anyway, there's also this guy named Creel, who's this, who's Alex Rocco's like kind of, you know, his his henchman. And it it comes out that he killed Tim's father because Tim's father didn't want them killing the snakes, something like that. And Creel, he's kind of, he kind of looks like like David Hess in the hessiest of times um like like a krug like character right with the big chops and the puffy hair mm-hmm. and then i'm like oh my god this guy is the guy that actually sang the theme song which i thought was an awesome twist and everything and this guy was also a former teen idol his name's steve a. alimo that was really big down in the in the southern united states um but you know it's just like Krug-like character that does these these great hippie songs. That's also this henchman. Okay. So then we find out that um, that Tim is actually taking his snakes in to make money, and he's getting the local like uh, um, college. They're like extracting the venom to try and like save lives. And he's also selling some snakes to a local stripper named Gloria, <laughs> <laughs> who uses them in her act. Huh. Uh, but okay, so now you know. So he goes to the strip club where we get to meet this really awesome drunk in the bar. Like I'm, I'm mentioning him. You're not going to know what I'm talking about when, when you see this drunk. He's like the best drunk you've ever seen. My question is, is he played by George Buckflower? No, he's, he's played by an unknown. But he's he's better than George Buckflower. Fuck this is you, like, no way. <laughs> he's very very limited screen time, but he's one of the most awesome drunks I've ever. Nobody's seen. better than George Buckflower at playing a drunk. Come on. <laughs> Trust me. Okay, so then we're also introduced to Alex Rocco's daughter, who's, you know, a bit of a, you know, she gets around, let's say. Um, Her name is Susie. Um, Okay, now here's where things get interesting. 
So I was already interested. There, there's two pieces. So at one point, Alex Rocco sends Creel, the the henchman guy, and another henchman, and another guy named Psycho to go out to the bio to like basically start gathering up snakes. And um, um, Tim sees this and gets mad, and he's like, "No, you guys can't do that." Okay, so then there's this like fight sequence, and then a, kind of an action and a bit of a chase scene, and then the second best thing to a car crusher in my opinion in a movie <laughs> and i have yet to see the two things in the same movie because if i did that would be the greatest movie i've ever seen in my life <laughs> but the second thing to a car crusher for me is quicksand oh shit <laughs> <laughs> so anytime you have a car crusher or quicksand in a movie i'm immediately gonna love it and there is an amazing quicksand scene in this movie I- how could you put quicksand and a car crusher in the same movie? <laughs> Dude, I could easily you could easily see those both in like Louisiana somewhere. I could totally imagine that. <laughs> so you could have an action scene in the in the fucking junkyard and then you could have an action scene in the like bio and they could run into someone could fall into quicksand and then later on someone falls into a car crusher. It would be the greatest movie ever made. But um <laughs> anyway, in the quicksand in this movie it looks like quicksand quicksand like like sometimes they'll fall in and it looks like water with leaves on it no this looks like quicksand so really that was Griffey pretty awesome. fucking around <laughs> so like you know people again okay, people fall in quicksand in this movie and not only do they fall into quicksand but then fucking tim throws a snake at them and the <laughs> snake then jumps on their faces when they're in the quicksand it's awesome it is a fucking awesome Okay, and and when when fucking um, Tim's walking around, like he's walking around with his bag, like he's like Jake the Snake. He's got his fucking bag, (laughs) and then he like pulls the snake out and throws it at people. It's so fucking rad. Okay, but then things really go crazy when (laughs) Tim goes to the strip club to visit Gloria, and he's just kind of hanging out in the shadows. And guess what's happened? Gloria's decided that to up her game as a stripper. She's going to start playing Cleopatra, and at the end of her her number, she fucking bites the head off a snake. Oh, and, shit. And then Tim's watching when this happens, Uh-oh. and he fucking goes apeshit. And that's when the movie kind of turns for me a little bit, because what happens is Tim then kidnaps Alex Rocco's daughter, and then turns all pervy. Hmm. And, like, it was totally against, like, everything I kind of liked about this guy. Then all of a sudden he's, like, trying to... He all of a sudden he's her. Martin Sheen. Yeah, he's, he's Martin Sheen. He brings her back to the cabin, <laughs> and then he's trying to, like, trying to get with her. And I'm like, dude, like, why would you do this after... Like, you've been so cool the whole movie, and now you're, like, perving on this girl? that There's, like, no reason to be doing this? So the movie kind of lost me at the end there a little bit, but... Man, up till then, there was so much good shit going on. This is like, this is the best snake movie. I mean, sorry, is a great (laughs) snake movie, but it's not really a snake movie. It's a guy turning into a snake movie. But as far as like actual like movies with tons of snakes, this one fucking is awesome. And like, I, I know Code Red, I believe, put this out. And that's really the only way you can get it other than on this amazing fucking. 200 movie pack from Bell Creek for $50. This movie in itself is worth the whole price of admission, guys. Is there a 50 bucks? <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> well, okay. How many movies have I talked about? I talked. This is the seventh. Is it already there's, the seventh? There, I, there's seven I've talked about, and there's probably <laughs> been three good ones already. This one's okay. If you bought the Code Red DVD, because I gotta say the print of this movie was beautiful. It was a nice widescreen, clean print. That if you bought that Code Red DVD, it'd probably cost you forty bucks. The Blu-ray. You can get. The, you can get Stanley and a hundred and fucking ninety nine other movies <laughs> for fifty dollars. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the greatest purchase I've ever made in like my entire moving buying career. Um, Thank you, Mill Creek. <laughs> oh my god, Mill Creek. Oh my god, like you're like the avocado of like film companies. But um, what? Yeah. So there, there's a lot of awesome snake attacks. There's. Um, I mean, I gotta say, like, like Tarantula, like Kingdom of the Spiders, or Tarantulas that had cargo. I'm sure the animal rights people were probably not too keen on some of the things that were going on during the, the movie. Um, although there was a scene where he starts beating the snake on the ground, and I rewound it like four times just to see. And I think it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a fake snake, but there were still a few questionable things that were going on. But I thought this guy that was this Chris Richmond guy that, or Chris Robinson that played Tim, thought he was awesome. Alex Rocco was always awesome. Creole, the Steve Alamo guy, awesome. Gloria the Stripper, awesome. The music, awesome. The snakes, awesome. The setting, amazing. Fucking quicksand. So yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> well, so, yeah. Stanley well, is rad. Well, you see, I have. I, I didn't even have to watch the end on YouTube. Huh? That's <laughs> a first. I, I when I go on vacation, I um like I have a summer vacation coming up. The second half we spend out in a condo and we watch like we purposely pick like movies like The Wilderness Family. Or you pick like a crazy lifetime movie or something. This might be going on that stack. Oh, this should go on that stack. Because Dude. I think I have it. <laughs> Dude, you, you do. You do. It's on that Gorehouse Great thing. Oh, then it's coming with me. Oh, and it's I'll, coming with I'll, you. I'll report back in a couple episodes about it's, Stanley. It's fucking rad. What, <laughs> yeah. what I what I find interesting is um this uh, William Griefy guy. I don't know much about him but um i know that daniel griffiths he's a guy who makes a lot of special features for blu-rays and dvds he made a documentary about him called they came from the swamp the films of william griefy in 2016 it's like a two hour six minute documentary about him and uh, i tried to buy it because i was so interested in it but unfortunately he didn't ship to canada but i know it's out there uh ballyhoo I think it's Ballyhoo Pictures is his company. You can buy it directly from him. So if you're interested in William Griefy and you want to see a documentary about him, I'd say go check that out. I want to know more about this movie, for sure. I've always been curious about that doc. But the one time I did order it on his website, he refunded me my PayPal because he's like, oh, I don't ship to Canada. Sorry. I was like, fuck me. Like, yeah, attention, attention, Americans! Like, why don't you ship to Canada? Like, that's it's so stupid when I hear that. And I know yeah. there's a few people that don't do that. But I don't understand at all. Yeah, but this is a guy who's made so many special features that you have seen on releases. Who went out of his way to make a love letter to a Florida filmmaker that nobody knows. So yeah, I find you know that why? you know why you know why he made that movie. Why? 
Because he fucking saw Stanley. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. All right. Well, okay. You know what? Since we're talking about 70s animal attack movies, I might as well fucking finish off with a 70s animal attack movie, right? I might as well. I mean, I've already talked about tarantulas. How how do I do this? I talk about fucking Orca from 1977 is how I fucking end this. This is directed by Michael Anderson, who you talked about recently, who made the movie Millennium, which you talked about. <laughs> yes. He's also responsible for Logan's Run and Doc Savage, Man yeah. of Bronze. Um, this is produced by Dino De Laurentiis the year after he did his 1976 King Kong movie. This is Dino De Laurentiis jumping on the Jaws train and bringing in who to star, Josh? Someone you mentioned a little while ago called Richard Harris is the yeah. star of this one. Who did he get to do the score in this? Ennio Morricone is who he got to do the score to this movie. <laughs> and in the opening credits, there's female harmonizing going on as a pair of orcas leap in the air and romp and have fun on that score. So that's what you're getting out of Orca right off the bat. And so this movie is a killer whale movie, basically. It's a killer, killer whale movie, I guess you would call it in a way. Um, so opens with what I am assuming is an intentional like wink at the at Jaws because it's got these divers under the water, it's got point of view shots, and then all of a sudden they're, you know, being threatened by a shark. So it's like, oh shit, the shark's coming to eat the divers. But before that can happen, along comes Richard Harris and his crew, whose fishing boat scares off the shark so the divers can be saved. However, the shark's not about to put up with that shit because he's a fucking shark and sharks are predators. So he decides, I'm going to go after I'm going to go after the guy from the fishing boat who fell in the water. But fuck no, that's not going to happen because a goddamn orca comes and kills that motherfucking shark so he can't hurt the humans. So orcas are cool. Automatically, orcas are cool. So I'm like, okay, this happens. I'm like, well, so far off to a good start. Plus, this is Bo Derek's film debut. Okay, off to a good start. You got Robert Carradine in this movie. Okay, you got Richard Harris playing the old man of the sea, kind of Moby Dick kind of character. Okay, I'm in. You set this in Newfoundland, so it's set in Canada. I'm in, <laughs> you know. Um, you got Charlotte Rampling as a researching scientist who tries to convince the grumpy uh, Richard Harris character with his odd Irish accent that he shouldn't be hunting orcas because they're intelligent. Okay, I'm in. So, so from there it becomes he is like Irish. Richard Harris is Irish, though. I, I know, but it's a really weird accent. It doesn't seem legit in this movie. <laughs> like it really seems like he's putting it on thicker than he should, or something. I don't know. I can't explain it to you. Because he's supposed to be in Newfoundland, so shouldn't he have like a? Shouldn't he have an East Coast Canadian accent and not be an Irish accent? I don't know. So anyway. So this happens. There's a lot of scenes early on of this really uh, obnoxious, grating, screeching whale noise early in the movie, um, and then, and then of course, we have Bo Derek's character on the boat with the crew with Richard Harris, and she's like, "Oh, don't you know that that whales are monogamous, and you know they they stay with one mate their entire life, and you know, so on and so forth." What fucking happens right after that, Josh? What do you think happens? Well, fucking Richard Harris accidentally kills the mate of one of them, of course. I mean, come on. What else are you going to do? You fucking kill a whale. That just happens, right? But, of course, 
something happens that, you know, this whale is going to remember. Because there's a scene of the whale seeing its mate being killed, staring at Richard Harris, a close-up of the whale's eye, imprinting the image of Richard Harris in its fucking memory. And it becomes a fucking vigilante movie from this point forward. Because that whale is out to get revenge for the people on the people who killed its mate. That's what work is all about. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there's some pretty fucking rad scenes of this. Like you remember in wilderness family, <laughs> we're going back to wilderness. Family. Remember in wilderness family, there was slasher movie bear. Yeah. This is fucking slasher movie orca because this is so unrealistic in the way that it, that it's it's so driven to get revenge. It's like fucking you put Jason with some fucking water wings on and some fucking f- like scuba flip fl- flippers, and he just fucking swam through the water murdering people with a machete. That's what Orca's doing. He's a fucking slasher movie. <laughs> he's just like he's a murderer. He's just like I'm gonna kill everyone. Fuck you. You're dead. You know. He's leaping in the air and ripping a dude off the sail of the boat. You know. He's fucking knocking over buildings and like fucking chomping off people's legs and shit i'm like fuck yeah orca do it bring it home but by far dude the best scene in this is fucking orca comes to the small village he fucking goes to the shoreline he's like oh i'm gonna show those assholes and he fucking knocks the pipe off there's this pipe going in the water and he fucking hammers it so it comes free starts a fucking fire the fire goes up that pipe which just happens to be feeding from the oil refinery that's up on the hill the fucking oil refinery in the background of the scene the oil refinery is fucking exploding in a big ball of fire in the foreground of the scene we see the fucking orca leaping in the air for joy for blowing up that fucking oil refinery it is fucking rad dude (laughs) dude this is a five-star movie like it's so rad (laughs) He blow it's blowing up and the orca leaps in the air like he's so fucking excited. He blew up the oil refinery. Oh my god. I'm buying this, this screen this, battery disc. This happens. I'm, I'm ordering it ordering it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so this happens. Um also on hand we have Will Sampson from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as the uh, typical wise Native American guy who who tells uh Richard Harris's character to lay the fuck off Orca too, because everyone seems to tell him and he's just like yeah, whatever. You know, I'm I'm gonna go for it. He's he's killing my crew. This is gonna this is gonna happen. Um, Rampling seems to be here just to argue with Harris and be a smiled love interest. Um, that set piece I talked about. There's this really great set piece where there's a house on stilts and the orca comes and knocks it down and it's falling into the water. And everyone's clinging on for dear life because they're sliding down the fucking house towards the water. And that's when Bo Derek has her most memorable scene in this movie, which if you've seen this movie, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then you've got a final showdown where they they all take off into the Arctic and follow the orc out to the Arctic. And there's a showdown on fucking icebergs of man versus whale on fucking oh. icebergs. Oh, my God. <laughs> With a fucking harpoon and fucking icebergs being tilted in the air and all sorts of shit. This movie is pretty fucking rad, dude. <laughs> like, why I, Why isn't everyone talking about this? I don't know. Like, I know there's a lot of people who don't like this. But the thing is, 
this is a silly fucking movie. Like, you can't take this movie seriously at all. You have to look at this movie that it's a fucking killer whale slasher movie because that's what this is. It's a killer whale slasher movie. There's no other way to describe this. And it's ridiculous, but it's also awesome. Like, there's a scene in the finale where Harris is, like, looking at the whale and he's like, come on, we're going to fight. Like, I, you know, I, I, I was wrong. I fucking killed your mate, okay? Whatever, it happened. Why are you so bent? Like, you know, basically, it's like, what the fuck's your problem? I followed you all the way up to the Arctic. Can't you at least have the courtesy of, like, you know, giving me a showdown? The fucking orca throws him against an iceberg. He comes sliding down the iceberg, ends up on an ice floe. Fucking orca's, like, smashes the ice floe free and pushes it out to the middle of the ocean so that Richard Harris has nowhere to go. It's like, I'm going to fucking finish you off right here in the middle of the ocean. It's you and me, buddy. Let's do it. Orca wow. is Orca is rad. <laughs> oh, shit. It's got a horrible end credit song, but it's got an Eno Morricone score. This is like Dino De Laurentiis, like firing on all cylinders as the producer of big studio ridiculous entertainment. Like, if you liked his version of Kong, you're going to like Orca, I think. <laughs> you know, I it, loved his version of Kong. Yeah, like this is ridiculous. But if you're going to talk about movies that riffed on Jaws, this is probably the top-notch Jaws riff out there. I don't know what I was expecting going in, but when it was over, I was like, oh, yeah. Fuck yeah, Orca. Yeah, you showed them. Fuck those guys. Shouldn't have killed your mate. That's just fucking what happens. You don't fuck with the family. It's done. You're fucking slasher movie. Kill everyone. So, yeah. Highly recommend Orca, for sure. Where did you see it? I watched the old Paramount DVD of it. Okay, I think I think I have that. I don't know why I've never watched this. It seems right on my alley, but yeah. But now, fucking for sure. Yeah, like it Find definitely this. definitely rised above my expectations. I yeah, mean, the Screen Factory disc doesn't come out to the end of the month. It doesn't look like, but I'm still would pre-order that shit. Yeah, you you have to have an appreciation for silly '70s nature run amok movies to get why Orca is so entertaining. So if you can't understand that, you probably won't like this. Let's just put it that way. All right. But, I mean, if you want to see Bo Derek freaking, you know, on a tilting house, or you want to see fucking iceberg, an iceberg fight, or you want to see a fucking oil refiner explode while an Orca jumps for joy in the fucking f- in the foreground, fuck yeah, Bob, watch Orca. Come on. it del- Like <laughs> Stanley, it delivers. It delivers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's Orca from 1977. Wow. Josh's VHS Adventures! Okay. So, <laughs> I have a movie here that I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to top. And that is one also starring Richard Harris. Oh. Also starring Bo Derek. Oh. And that is Tarzan the Ape Man from nineteen eighty one. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my god. And I don't know why I have tortured myself with this movie three times at least that I know of. <laughs> but I have. And in some ways, this thing is fucking amazing. <laughs> and as I reflect on it more, I just I think about it. I've been thinking about it all the time since I've watched it. Really? And 
this oh okay okay let's get into this okay so <laughs> this is a movie okay so let's start off with can Jar-Jar. i just say can i just say before you start that i was actually watching they were actually playing bolero on tv a couple days ago with bo Derek, and i watched a bit of it and you haven't lived until you've seen bolero kiss a guy's naked ass i just wanted to throw <laughs> that out there <laughs> bolero's got that honey scene in it too oh, i haven't but, seen uh, that <laughs> oh, oh i have okay okay so, anyway okay before we get into Bo and richard and everyone else let's talk about john derrick so john derrick i've always kind of had an affinity for because he played joshua in the ten commandments he then married Bo derrick and decided to become a photographer and start <laughs> basically directing movies that she started yeah now, keep in mind that john derrick is 30 years older than Bo derrick and I didn't know this, but he started dating her when she was 16. Oh. So oh, that's no. fucked up. That's fucked up. Okay. So the movie opens. It's an MGM movie. Okay. So immediately the MGM lion comes up, <laughs> opens its mouth for the big roar. But do it's we get the big noise. roar? No, we get the Tarzan yell. So nice. picture. No. <laughs> no, not nice. <laughs> Picture the MGM lion doing the Tarzan yell. You probably can't. I couldn't fucking believe my eyes. So that's that's how this opens. And I'm like, okay, I didn't remember it being quite this ridiculous, but it sets the tone. Let's just say it sets the tone. Um, okay, then we get editing. <laughs> okay, so I've made a few short films in my day, and when I made the first thing I ever made... You know, I was in the editing studio, and you had this thing called the video toaster, and you could put, like, cheesy, like, blood dripping down the screen transitions and shit like that. <laughs> this movie has editing transitions like that. Like, like a wipe? These, like, like, these cheesy, like, uh, like, a water would be, like, a oh. wa- like a like a wave would be the wipe. Yeah, like, oh, it was... Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so I'm like, and then, then the credits are rolling, and I'm like... Okay, so John Derrick produced it. John Derrick directed it. He was the DP. Bo produced it by herself. um, And she's also the star. Now, if you don't know who Bo Derrick is, she is potentially one of the most beautiful women that's ever graced the screen. Like, as far as, like, like her, like, back in the day, like, for a for her body and everything, I mean, she started in a movie called Ten. I'd say she legit probably was a ten, right? If you're talking like that, which we don't talk like that anymore, but um, probably one of the most beautiful women at the time. John Derrick knew that. Bo Derrick knew that. So that's why in all of John Derrick directed Bo Derrick movies, he's basically showing off his wife throughout the movie, which is creepy in itself. Mm-hmm. But um, I can't tell if he was a creep or if he's just like, look at my hot wife. I don't know what he was doing. But basically in this movie, any time there's any body of water, she needs to jump in it in her white T-shirt. Like, and I'm not kidding. Like any time they're walking by a fucking river, she'll jump in. They're at the ocean. She'll jump in. They're at the, they're at the lake. She jumps in. Like literally any time. And then sometimes she'll take her shirt off. Sometimes she'll not. Okay. So the... the Okay, and then Richard Harris is also in this movie. So if you know that it's very loosely based on the legend of Tarzan. So 
she's gone off to the jungle to find her dad, played by Richard Harris, is in the middle of the jungle. She finds him. Now, Richard Harris in this movie is like... Remember when I was talking about 99 and 4400% dead? And I'm like, I can't believe how cool Richard Harris is. Because all I can think of when I think of Richard Harris is him in this movie. Which is <laughs> him, like, running around, yelling... Like, he's just fucking downed a bunch of JD and a bunch of fucking, like, cocaine. Like, that's... And he's just running around yelling. Like, every sentence is a yell. So he's <laughs> yelling the whole movie. I don't know if he's doing that in Orca or not. It sounds like he might have been. So he's running around. He The opening scene with Richard Harris is he's wearing this nightshirt that not quite covers his naked ass. So he's running around in the jungle <laughs> with his naked ass hanging out. His daughter's pulled up. And uh, he's just worried about this cannon that she's brought. He's obsessed with this cannon. So I'm really like, what the fuck is happening? Like, what is going on? And then why is he? Why does he care more about this cannon than his daughter? And then why does he want to go on this jungle expedition? So he decides he's going on this jungle expedition with the cannon, with with his daughter Boderic, with John Philip Law from Danger Diabolique, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and... Um, what else was John Barbarella? I'm like, what is he doing in this movie? And everyone, I'm like, what are these people doing in this movie? So they're they're going on this this hunt for this elephant graveyard. So they start traipsing through the forest. There's a few minor action scenes that are you know poorly directed. Then they get to this. <laughs> they get to the ocean. So I'm like, okay, you're on the river. You climb a big mountain. You get to the top of the mountain, and then there's the ocean. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> Like why would why would the ocean be way up there? Like wouldn't it be down on sea level? Like how did you have to? Why did you climb a mountain? It was very confusing to me. Anyway, they get to the ocean, and Bo's like <laughs> jumps as, in the water as expected. I want to have a bath in the ocean. Who has a bath in the ocean? No one I know. Anyway, she off. She takes off all her clothes, runs into the ocean. John Philip Law and Richard Harris and the rest of the group go ahead. She's like, I'll catch up to you guys. So she's splashing around to the ocean in her Bo Derek way. Maybe like, he'll catch up to you guys. Yeah, she said she'll catch up. And they're in John Philip Lund and Harris are like, okay, cool. So off they go. She's splashing around in the ocean. And as she's splashing around, a male lion then starts walking down the beach. And I'm like, where the fuck did the lion come from? Like <laughs> <laughs> a lion. It's a big ass lion. And it like goes down to the beach and it's just watching her in the ocean. And she's all scared. And then Tarzan comes out, played by Miles O'Keefe. He comes out, starts running along the beach. And, you know, there's been all this hype about Tarzan in discussions through the first half of the movie that he's like 10 feet tall or 20 feet tall and he's this beast and whatever. Anyway, no, he's just a super hot model dude in a loincloth. Comes over and um, she sort of comes out of the water there's like some frolicking around with Tarzan the lion and her I guess it's established that they fall in love in this scene but it's not really established it's just kind of really weird apparently the tiger or the lion actually tried to attack Miles O'Keefe in this scene which you can kind of see happening so I'm like this seems really unsafe and really unnecessary but whatever she's not even wearing any clothes and and whatever is going on so Richard Harris and John Philip Law come back and save her um, they continue on their trek. Tarzan then kidnaps her, brings her to the jung- brings her to like where he lives in the jungle. Then we're introduced to the monkeys. So we're introduced to a orang- orangutan, 
which don't traditionally live in Africa, and a couple of chimpanzees. And then there's the scene where Tarzan, like, kind of saves her. I can't even remember what he saves her from, but he saves her from something. Oh, ah, fuck, how could I forget this? He saves her from a fucking anaconda that's attacking her in the water. And it, okay, the anaconda wraps himself itself around her. And she's like, oh, the anaconda, like, really, like, lamely, like, not getting too excited about it. And it's, like, starting to crush her, right? So he comes, Tarzan comes. They fall into the, they, all three of them fall into the water. And then for whatever reason, John Derrick decides, I'm going to shoot this in slow motion. <laughs> and then it's, like, the super slow motion. And I, I'm not shitting you. It goes on for, like, three minutes, maybe even four and it's just like you don't even know what's happening. It's like Bella Lugosi and fucking Bride of the Monster with, you know, but but it's Miles O'Keefe with the snake rolling around in slow motion. I'm like, oh my god, this is the most poorly directed action scene I've ever seen in my life. And eventually they, um, he saves Bo Derek, but he's knocked out at this point. So now she starts like going, hmm, I've never touched a man before. <laughs> so she's like literally starts to like touch him as he's unconscious and i'm like what the fuck is happening and then the monkeys are both sitting beside him as well and everyone's like the monkeys are looking uncomfortable like they're literally it will cut to like a close-up of the chimpanzee that's like looking away like like super uncomfortable like not knowing what to do and the orangutan is there and he's like kind of looking uncomfortable everyone's looking uncomfortable and and she's like leching on tarzan and i'm like what the fuck is going on so eventually she gets saved again by john dare or no no then she starts going on about they go for a swim again they go for a swim together and she's like and then it's like her going because he can't I guess Tarzan can't speak English so it's just both like talking to herself going I wonder if he's a virgin I'm a virgin I I wonder if he's a virgin I wonder if my daddy knows that he's a virgin I wonder if my daddy knows that I'm a virgin it's like the most inane dialogue what (laughs) but she's wearing a wet t-shirt so i didn't really care that much i'm just kind of like i wonder if my daddy knows i'm a virgin yeah wonders if tarzan is a virgin she's and she's eating a banana as she's talking about it (laughs) (laughs) it is ridiculous okay so then she ends up getting captured by this other tribe of these people that are these natives that look like all white dudes that are painted white in white paint. She gets captured, as does Richard Harris, as does John Philip Law. They get brought back to the, like, native camp. <laughs> she gets... They, then they, of course, strip her down again, and they start washing her as she's on all fours. And it's cutting to Richard Harris, and, and you can hear her in the back going, Daddy, Daddy, they're washing me like a horse! help me right make me forget make she's like make me forget make me forget so then drunk <laughs> drunk richard harris is like so what does he do what would what do you think he would do in this situation my his daughter's like yelling make me forget help me help me make me forget what would richard what would you do what would richard harris do in this situation i don't fucking know slap her on the ass no no he could no, he's tied up he can't do anything so what does he do he fucking think about your mother dying. No, no. He decides. He decides the best choice in this situation is to, sing. is to shout 
Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Like the fucking nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty had a big fall. Humpty Dumpty. It's like shouted like a fucking all drill. The kings like a, all the king's men. And it's like a drill sergeant. And I'm, and meanwhile, she's like, they're 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 washing me like they're painting. And then they, then they paint they're her washing white. me like a horse. Yeah. And then, then they're like, then they're painting her like with Does the white Does she actually paint. like narrate what's happening? They're oh, painting me now. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what's happening. And Richard, and then then this guy comes out, played by um, a former wrestler Steve Strong, who went on to play the Mask in Grunt the Wrestling Movie. Oh yeah. He's like the leader of the tribe, and then he's going over obviously to do bad things to Bo, um, like really bad things. And you know Richard Harris is still there, and she's like. Ah! You know, like <laughs> saying stuff, and then Tarzan swoops in another five minute slow motion fight between Tarzan and the the wrestler guy, and um, then okay, and then then it basically it's it's pretty much over, but Bo decides she's gonna st- stay with Tarzan. So then we get the again an end credit sequence that kind of rivals Body Double, because we've got her then. <laughs> On the sand, like the end, the end shot is basically a shot of Tarzan, Bo, and the orangutan on this like kind of beach, and they're all rolling around together naked for the whole end credits, <laughs> and it's amazing. So it's kind of <laughs> like the Howling Two end credits, where it's just Sybil Denning ripping her top off repeatedly. It, exactly, but with an orangutan in the mix, like oh. it's like the fucking worst threesome ever and uh it it was but it's pretty awesome at the same time wow tarzan that third guy's really hairy maybe we should have told him to shave before we started this orgy so yeah like the monkeys are so fucking inappropriate in this movie and like i actually i didn't see this happen but apparently in one of the scenes like one of the chimpanzees apparently like grabs a like a little nipple suck on bow like it's just (laughs) It's so fucked up. And I'm like, who was... Wasn't anyone, like, watching this all unraveling, going, this is not okay. This is not good. This is well, not... Well, no, because Bo Derek's a producer. She doesn't fucking care. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, like, I was reading some of the trivia. Apparently, like, she fired, like, over half the crew, like, during production. Probably for that reason. They were probably like, what are you doing? Why are you filming a scene with you and, and Miles O'Keefe and an orangutan rolling around on the... On the sad like what's like wrong? i'm the producer and my husband's the director get off my set <laughs> exactly <laughs> um what else do i have here um yeah i mean the only thing and i don't know if this made it would have made it better or worse apparently the first person that was cast before richard harris was oliver reed so oh, I, <laughs> oh. this should I, be an, this would be early 80s oliver reed so this is like this would be like heavy alcoholism oliver reed probably Either Oliver well, it was, Reed. It was heavy alcoholism, cocaine. Um, Richard, Richard Harris. Harris. I think he was still traumatized from fucking Orca going after him. He's like, oh fuck, I can't, I can't forget that time that fucking killer whale came after me. Oh my god, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm so traumatized. <laughs> anyway, the whole thing is pretty fucked up. Like I'm just like, and I've seen it a few times. And I think it's like a train wreck. Like I just can't. I like kind of can't stop watching it like it's called tarzan the ape man like tarzan doesn't even show up for about till about half the movie he doesn't speak at all 
Um, and it's not Miles O'Keefe's fault. Like, I think people look at this movie and think he was lame. No, nah, he was fine. He was fine for what he was given. He went on to be in, like, the A-Tor movies. And uh, and um, and I think he was Dracula in Waxwork. But he, he's, he was fine for what he was. But holy shit, man, this thing, it's just... It's just a, a crazy mess, and uh, um, yeah, I would just love to know like what really happened and why they made choices like they did, but this thing is all over the place. But if you're a Bo Derek fan, it's got everything you would want and more. But the thing about John Derek and Bo Derek movies that they made together, all they are are voyeurism, and that's yeah. it. Yeah. Like, Bolero pretty much voyeurism if you think about it because it's like he's staging these like super erotic sex scenes with his fucking wife because he directed bolero and ghosts can't do it he's staging fucking sex scenes of her fucking a ghost and ghost i've never seen that one like oh my god they're like he's he could give Ed Wood a run for his money as as one of the worst directors if you want to get if you want to throw down like like tax like he's uh i don't know the only reason he made movies in the first place is because of bo Derek. like yeah, let's be I, honest yeah i mean i mean this looked okay because of the setting right i mean you're in yeah. this like beautiful like jungle setting but but oh my god like just the editing choices were all fucked up like the dialogue was terrible like uh, the action was poor like there was no quicksand like where's the quick this a tarzan movie there should have been quicksand in this fucking. Well, no, you've now no helped quicksand. you've now helped me find out what opening quote I'm going to do on this this episode when I when I edit it. It's <laughs> it's going to be Bo Derek going, "Daddy is washing me like a horse." If I can find it, I guarantee you that's going to be the opening friggin' uh, sure sound clip. Can, this. I'm sure you can find it. <laughs> Oh my God! Anyway, You're... I I uh, I don't know what to say. I think everyone should see this movie once. Have you ever seen it? No. I think it's worth a look. Uh, I definitely one you'd want to watch with a few friends. But um, man, oh man, this thing is just—it something. sounds worse than Sheena, and Sheena's a shit show. <laughs> like Tanya Roberts, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. Mm-hmm. It's a shit show too. It sounds. This but sounds it... worse. If you're watching it to kind of let out, like, I could see it being, like, I mean, it does have Bo Derek in it. And for the yeah. ladies, it does have Miles O'Keefe in it, who is also a pretty incredibly looking dude, right? So, I mean, from that perspective, I think there's stuff, there's, there's something there from a sex appeal point perspective. But, man, I mean, this was not <laughs> Johnny Weisbiller, man. I, I wonder what he would have thought of this thing. Um, it would have been pretty embarrassed. And uh, I think Greystoke, which came out a few years later, was probably much better. Um, but, uh, yeah. It's, I, I think I, probably I, Tarzan, the one Tarzan with Casper Van Dien is probably better. <laughs> <laughs> but it does have it does have that kind of train wreck quality to it where uh, it it is, you know, bizarrely mesmerizing in, in, a, in a way. So there you go. I mean, this is pretty crazy flick and uh i don't know if i'm gonna let go of the cover man it's got a pretty epic cover with bo derrick swinging through the through the jungle so yeah oh, oh boy anyway there you go tarzan the ape man josh's beatrice adventures okay well if we're gonna go out uh anyway we're gonna go out with some bo derrick might as well <laughs> double shot double shot <laughs> double richard harris 
right at <laughs> yeah. the end. Right at the end. Oh, man. Okay. Well, what are the chances of that happening, eh? Who, who knows? I mean, at least in Orca, he's like, you know, I wanted Richard Harris to sing a sea shanty in Orca, actually. That would have been pretty awesome. If he's on his boat, he's like, go to go kill me a whale or something. It would have been great. But, but anyway, um, this is the point of the show where I say the typical stuff. Uh, if you want to connect with us, start a discussion, go to our Facebook group. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for GBW Podcasts. And rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh stitcher wherever but most importantly if you like the show tell a friend spread the word and uh you get to listen to us talk about movies for three hours every two weeks and ridiculous movies like tarzan the ape man what more do you need like what more do you need anything else to add no we're good all right on that note good night everybody